surprisingly deep subject of John Hughes. I know it's not typical of Rankin Review to be talking about, you know, teen comedies or family comedies, but um, I grew up loving John Hughes movies, and as each decade passes, some of them have aged well and some of them have not. Here to talk with me about these six movies is Shoshana Green, sort of a voice from Christmas past, uh, I knew her very well in my younger years, but uh, time and geography put us in different places, and uh, so we kind of had this little reunion here to talk about these nostalgic John Hughes features. I'm talking about six films written and directed by John Hughes. His influence over comedy, especially in the 80s and early 90s, just can't be overstated, and uh, he is still, I think, one of my favorite filmmakers even though, as we will discuss, there is some problematic stuff here. I'm guessing there'll be feedback to this episode, so you can send that to review at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca, and as always, you should go into the podcast expecting there to be coarse language, usually from me, and spoilers for the six films being ranked. Thank you so much for listening. Please do tell a friend about Rank and Review. We drop every other Wednesday. pressing record since we started talking about John Hughes anyway. <laughs> um, two, we've already talked about two of the movies, and now let's do the introduction. <laughs> um, Shoshana Green, I think you were like, well, well, can I call you that? Is that is that legit? Okay. Uh, I thought you were the perfect person to talk about John Hughes movies with me because you, like I, uh, have loved the movies your entire life. And probably like me, your relationship with them has changed somewhat, right? In some ways, yes, yes. 
I think I imagined a time where I would be able to share this with my kids and they would appreciate it on the same level that I did. And sadly, I don't know that that day has ever fully come. In a weird way, the, the most connection my children feel to a John Hughes property is Home Alone. Yeah, that's the only one I've shown my son so far, and that is going to be the one that is like, that he <laughs> through life. I think. But he he enjoyed Ferris Bueller, and he's quoted Ferris Bueller to me, Owen, a few times. But it's not like this important piece of like his childhood. And to me, John Hughes was a hugely important piece of my childhood. And I think, in contrast with the other teen movies that we were getting in the eighties, that were like a lot more, you know. What is it? The slobs versus, uh, you know, snobs kind of stuff. The Animal House, The Revenge of the Nerds, where all the teenagers were played by 20 or 30-somethings, and it, they just weren't even pretending to be grounded in the real world at all, were kind of different than John Hughes. Now, John Hughes could be absurd and could be weird, but the kids look like kids. Say what you will about 16 Candles. Anthony Michael Hall is a 15-year-old kid in that movie. And we yeah. believe it. And uh, Molly Ringwald in that movie is a believable teenage girl in a way that we just didn't get. And yeah, the movies did have weird flights of fantasy and were darker than maybe they should have been. But I, in a way, that was part of the appeal. I think when you're a kid, you want to feel like you're not being talked down to. And you want to have jokes that are kind of naughty and forbidden. And he did used to write for National Lampoon, which, you know, kind of dealt with that edgy line of humor. And maybe it doesn't fit comfortably in a teenage movie. It definitely probably wouldn't survive this generation. But... For when and where it was, the 1980s and the early 90s for John Hughes, especially those teen comedies, it's a real sweet spot for me. And I think you and I, at a young age, kind of bonded over that. Agreed. And have you noticed all of the references appearing now in pop culture? Like, you probably haven't watched the uh, Mindy Kaling produced Never Have I Ever. Afraid not. There are several, like, without actually saying, this is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, this is Sixteen Candles, there are several, like, homages throughout the three seasons, and uh, so, I don't know, I feel like that kind of speaks to some of the universality of the, uh, of his characters. There are some movies that are just universally, like, they'll always be there. And there are other movies that I think are very of their time, that really define themselves for their time. And unfortunately, I think The Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles are kind of the latter. They, they maybe don't have the legs of The Wizard of Oz or anything like this. Oh, God. <laughs> you know the midgets were apparently, like, horrible, right? Like, the, the little people in The Wizard of Oz, like, harassed the hell out of Judy Garland. Huh. Well, there's darkness behind every, I guess, behind-the-scenes story. I heard that the uh, the dust that they got dripped on when they are going through the poppy field were flakes oh, yeah, of asbestos. asbestos. Yeah. <laughs> Good times. Good times. Um, and, you know, there's probably grim behind-the-scenes stories to John Hughes, too. Apparently, he and John Belushi, for instance, didn't get along, shocker. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the Belushis have a legacy of not getting along with people. Maybe that's just... Where was John Candy? Like, 
Tell me that Curly Sue wouldn't have been a completely different experience if it was John Candy. <laughs> I think John Candy wouldn't have been as believable as like as the romantic lead, unfortunately. Right. He didn't fit that John Belushi type. <laughs> <laughs> he was barely believable. <laughs> um, so we are talking about this this episode we're gonna talk about six of the eight movies that John Hughes personally directed. The two that we're not going to be talking about would be Weird Science and She's Having a Baby. I can give you this opportunity now. Is there anything that you had like to say about those two movies or are you upset that they weren't on the included on your list or No, I think you know that like the ones that I'm more into are the ones that he wrote and produced. Like, I mean, some kind of wonderful that yeah. is like my teenage heart and uh and um pretty in pink pretty in pink i saw a little bit later in life like 16 candles breakfast club some kind of wonderful i saw pretty much as soon as they were available out on a movie network not in the theater but like i saw them at the time weird science i didn't see till i was like 20 She's having a baby i also saw right away and i just remember thinking like this is funny <laughs> You're not funny. You're not funny. <laughs> I just was like, this isn't, like, I don't know if I realized it was part of his oeuvre, but, like, I knew that there was something about it that, like, was kind of missing for me, so I was not sad that it was not on the list. Well, I have good things to say about both of those movies that he directed, The Weird Science and She's Having a Baby, but I will agree that they are outliers. I think that these six kind of... You can see the connective vibe and tissue of, like, the John Hughes vibe. One thing I will say is, like, which came first? She's having a baby or Planes, Trains? Uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was first, but they were basically produced almost simultaneously. Because you can feel where he's going with the more, like, kind of grown-up character vibe. Like, you can see how planes trains could lead to the more sort of serious she's having a baby but all i really remember about that is like the tiny panties and the big panties <laughs> and then just like feeling like nobody was happy about having a baby <laughs> well and i think in that movie and in weird science he tried to do more bizarre sort of comedic dreamlike moments and the balance was a little bit off for those movies all of the movies, as we'll discuss, have moments where they completely break reality. But um, Weird Science kind of lived there. And um, some, or she's having a baby. Those flights of fantasy actually distracted from the fairly serious tone that we were otherwise getting. So they weren't as, uh, you know, they didn't quite fit in as nicely. Whereas, you know, when Ferris Bueller, when all of a sudden he's leading the parade and singing the Beatles tune and everybody's doing choreographed dance number, you just take it right on the chin. Just, okay. yeah. so, this is what happens in life. And yeah, you're mentioning some of the other ones that he wrote. I also have always had a soft spot for the great outdoors. Another. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I showed that one to my kids and Tristan wants a movie just about the raccoons from the great outdoors. <laughs> he thinks the raccoons are like the bee's knees. So. I kind of do too. I kind of feel that, Tristan. Well. Um, I, I really. It's John Candy's the, like, the hero, and Dan Aykroyd is the jerk, right? That's right. Dan Aykroyd is really good in that role. Like, yep. Just that douchey role is like 
I think, kind of the acrid sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the great, yeah. There, there's a lot on the plate, but yeah, I would say I wish Some Kind of Wonderful was canon, and I would like to watch it again, but it's been a while, and I don't know how it would go these days. <laughs> I also think that someone needs to put a missing person report out on, uh, is it Mary Stuart Masterson? Yes. She mm-hmm. did a lot for a while. I saw her when the boys were young playing Cinderella on Blues Clues and my heart just sank to my feet because she's an amazing actress and as much as Blues Clues was just a fantastic show I felt like she deserved better than that <laughs> Agreed Agreed Well, I mean Cinderella is Well, John Ashton, like Eric Stoltz is that? Yeah. Yeah. He popped up and I was like, who is that guy? And then I remembered it's the dad from Some Kind of Wonderful. He was either in Curly Sue briefly or in Planes Trains. Right. I think. Yeah, like, I know who you're talking about. Okay. Sorry. There's like one magnificent thing in Curly Sue, but we'll get there. Okay. Flag that for later. Yeah. Um, mainly, I just wanted to thank you for being my co John Hughes fan. And although we're going to acknowledge that there's some issues here, I think we're agreed this is going to be a big old love fest that we're about to get into. So Absolutely. Let's get into it. Unless there's anything else you wanted to say by way of introduction. No. All right. I got to get out of here before anything else terrible happens. She's stuck between a half-wit. Very hot! Very hot! And a heartbreaker. I want a serious girlfriend. Somebody I can love. It's going to love me back. Pretty intense, huh? Over. Everyone she knows is either on her case. You know you're the one I want to buy, huh? Or out of their tree. It only happens once in a lifetime. This has got to be a joke. And once is enough. Happy birthday, Samantha. This is getting good. 16 candles. No, please tell me your 16 Candles story. It's not that exciting. It's just like, it's it's how I know 16 Candles. So I saw it as a kid, and then in grade 12, I became very good friends with my still good friend, Jessica Diane Ike, and she had a taped copy of 16 Candles from, like, television with, like, commercials and freeze frames so we don't see boobs, and for... Eleven, she's like just had that in her VCR all the time, and whenever she was home doing stuff, she put it on. Then it made its way to my VCR in grade twelve, so I spent grade twelve just watching Sixteen Candles on loop as I was doing like sewing projects and homework and whatever. So I kind of have it memorized, so I knew what I was getting into when I went back to it. <laughs> I think there was one new thing for me this time, and it was in the scene where well that's a little bit later in the movie so do you want like a first impressions of 16 candles like first old person impressions all right your retro view of 16 candles where did it leave you even the unwatchable parts that i knew were coming were still really hard to watch like the stuff with the chinese exchange student the stuff with like 
the handsy grandmother. Yeah. But I kind of think that, like, they're in different categories because that handsy grandmother, like, that, um, I mean, that's never been my experience, but I feel like that is, like, the feeling of being a teenage girl 90% of the time is that, like, cringing, someone is doing something wrong and you can't speak up about it. It's a very, like, accurate experience, like, part of the teenage girl experience. And uh, I don't know, the, the one thing I know about Long Duck Dong this time is that, like, yeah, it's a terribly written character. I do think we're, like, all of the people who say really racist things except Molly Ringwald, we're supposed to kind of hate. But I just noticed, like, he's such a dog. <laughs> well, like, he gets it, and he, like, gets some, and he's, like, really into it. And Ken Watanabe is the actor who plays yeah. Long Duck Dong in this. And I, he talked on the uh, documentary on the anniversary edition of it. And he's not ashamed of it. He's not like, like, he got an acting gig and he did what he could with it. And in a weird way, that character is one of the most positive characters in the movie in that all he wants to do is have a good time and make connections with people. And he is very successful at all of it. And the pointed racist, racist lines, I think, are right. They're meant more as a slap to the people who are saying them. Agreed. If I could remove one thing out of this, it would be the fucking gong. Every time he enters the room or is mentioned, that gong sounds and it others him. It makes him not real. It makes him this cartoon, you know, one of the flights of fancy of John Hughes instead of a real character. And no, you can't take him seriously and not be a little bit offended by it. But I don't think that it was a character written with hate in it. I think it was an accurate reflection of where the culture was at the time. And if you can't sit with it, that's fine. But it's going to hurt your enjoyment of this movie. No, you're right. The gong is definitely, like, the worst part. That dislikable little brother and his terrible, like, clean, like, boil the sheets and mattresses line. Like, he's just a terrible person and we need him. We need to have like one dimensional piece of crap in the family to just kind of in hatred on well and that's what I connected to watching it as an adult now is like I remembered it as being sort of a more girl centric John Hughes movie right she wants to get this impossible senior boy and there's no way it's going to happen for her and then it does yay but when I watch it now it's much more about her whole family and the bridezilla sister and everything swirling around her and nothing being about her to the point where they forget her 16th birthday which is premise of the movie yeah molly ringwald wakes up on her 16th birthday and everyone has forgotten her life is in shambles and she just has to take it on the chin because her sister's about to get married her entire family's there and she's not going to cause this new problem even though she's hurt justifiably hurt by this this wrong that has been done to her I have grappled with that premise since I was a little kid because I was always just like, you would know that you planned your wedding the day after your sister's 16th birthday. You would know. Yeah. But like, it just kind of makes this family so terrible. And I mean... They do try to redeem it with Paul Dooley as the dad having the heart-to-heart and that scene is really good. It is the best. 
<laughs> as is the ending when he roots for her, even though getting into a sport dude who looked like 25. Yeah. Away from her sister's wedding family obligation. You kind of love him, even though, like, other dads might be sounding alarm bells. <laughs> Well, he also, like, he was the one who remembers it's her birthday, and he apologizes, and she accepts his apology, and yet he still knows her well enough to know that's not the end of it. There's still something else that's bothering his daughter, and he still sits it out with her until he can at least try to answer that. If, in, to uh, accommodate all the other failures that he's done today, he's not going to fail her again at night, and that is, you know, a warm scene, and the movie did need that at that point. Absolutely, and he also seems to like recognize the shortcomings of all the other kids in the family. Like yeah. maybe not quite the mom, but he has his comments about the bride's sister and uh, and about Mike's sister. <laughs> and then there's the other girl who I don't even know if we know her name, Sarah. Is yeah, Sarah? she might be more forgotten than even Molly Ringwald. Her little sister gets no attention at all. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, I like. I'm pretty sure I get look at a tear in my eye during that scene. like a classic father-daughter rom-com. Yeah. Um, I think it would be wrong to not bring up Anthony Michael. <laughs> so this is where the, like, um, this is where I feel like he is kind of universal. And the scene in the shop is my favorite scene of the movie. <laughs> Um, where he tips over the shelf and, and, and helps, yeah and then he comes in and she says it's her birthday everyone's forgotten and he starts singing the Beatles <laughs> song which I still play for my friend on her birthday here that would be just and uh but like the scene where he explains how he's the king of the idiots and she's like well that's still kind of cool <laughs> you're the king of something yeah and I feel probably still exists. I know it definitely existed when we were in high school. Um, yeah, well, it was a different time for sure. Like, uh, I, I might have been chastised for liking Pretty in Pink and some kind of wonderful in, in high school, but uh, I don't think that would be the case necessarily today. You, no. It would just probably say something about your parents. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think specifically about Anthony Michael Hall is just how he is the very nerve of awkwardness of being a teenage boy who wants everything but knows how to get nothing. And even when he's being earnest and sweet, he'll still step on a rake and make like a terrible like joke or like try to move in for that kiss. <laughs> it's just, no, no, that's not what we're doing here, dude. You've just undone a lot of goodwill <laughs> with that stupidity. And... You could almost hate him for it, but it is recognizable. Like, I, I'd like to say that I was never that hardcore, like, lost in my own geekery or whatever, but, like, I recognize it. And it might make me wince, and it might bring up some uncomfortable memories, but it is, again, authentic. He's exactly. 15 years old when he's playing this part, and you know what? He is really, really good in the movie. He's fantastic yeah um i have to say like as much as i hate the gong for long duck dong yes i love the is it is it um what's the what's his theme music is it 
Peter Gunn, John Gunn. Yeah, it's like cop music or something. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I love that as his theme music, and um, it's one of those like sort of flights of fancy as you've spoken of of the John Hughes, but it's fantastic to me, and his hair is so wonderful. <laughs> A little bit reminiscent of Patrick Dempsey's hair in. Uh, can't buy me love just like this straight up nerd just it's up yeah it's up and it's gonna do what it wants to do nothing will tame it (laughs) well we can't be completely kind to this though because our 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 romantic lead gives him the opportunity to quote take his girl home at the end of the night and she is too drunk to stand and how that all plays out is uh is really not cool <laughs> this, is, this is like a problematic scene for me and I was like alluding to it earlier but the scene where like at the end of the party after Jake kicks everybody out he finds Anthony Michael Hall trapped under the glass coffee table <laughs> and then they're in the kitchen Anthony Michael Hall's making them some sort of sophisticated drink yeah and he's real smooth about it <laughs> and he's so smooth and he's so like um like he's so in, like in himself and in charge of the conversation, and it's really great until <laughs> the heartthrob of all heartthrobs. I mean, nobody was hotter to me when I was a young teen or tween than um, Jake Ryan. Says I got Caroline upstairs. I could violate her ten different ways if I wanted to. But he's a good guy because he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Like, and I mean, honestly, I don't think that's way off for a description of a teenage boy. Like, I don't think that's way out there. I feel like that is lived experience. But, but it's this terrible, it's this terrible scene because on the one level they're connecting the cool guy and the geek, and the geek is like speaking these truths about women and life, and then and then you know just throwing some rape. Yeah. And it's so easy for him, right? This girl threw himself at him, and if it wasn't her, it would be someone else. In fact, the next one's going to be Molly Ringwald. I never really connected to that character because I was never a teenage girl. Maybe <laughs> maybe I was uh, missing some of the key factors of that. But I'm still uncomfortable with, like, even they try to sweeten the after. Like, she, she wakes up the next morning. She's hanging out with this guy she would never, ever lower herself to speak to. And she senses like something happened between them, but she doesn't remember it. And they try to play it off as cute and sweet and maybe the beginning of a relationship. And no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Very date shave song moment when they're taught in the aftermath and she says you know what I like best and he says my clean clothes shave and then there's that little barbershop quartet in the background I love that and then like no it was waking up in your arms and I'm like what has happened to this girl in her lifetime (laughs) that she's happy to have woken up in a strange place with a strange dude I'm a woman now (laughs) And it just um, makes me sad for her. 
and makes me sad for girls because again i think this was like pretty accurate of the time i think it was accurate 10 years later when we were in high school and i think it i hope it's not accurate anymore but well and i think that that's something that people who like to beat up on john hughes will refuse to recognize high school is ugly Pubescent boys do not have the purest of intentions all of the time. Neither do pubescent girls, for the record. <laughs> but um, terrible situations do present themselves. And uh, to acknowledge them, I think, is maybe necessary and bold. But I think you need to take them a little bit more seriously. And I think, I, like, to give him the benefit of the doubt, I go back to his experience with National Lampoon and that, like, let's ride the edge of what we can get away with humor being where he kind of cut his teeth and that that type of humor as much as it has its place maybe doesn't fit as comfortably in this movie as you know it seemed at the time i also think that he grows on this topic and we can maybe discuss that when we get to uncle buck right but like I see changes in how he handles his male characters and his female characters over the course of the movies. And, uh, I mean, that's the thing is I think like people who hate 16 candles sort of latch on to the gong, latch on to the rape jokes and don't really appreciate like there's heart in the movie. Well, it's not just that, but it's, like, it's so accurate. Like, that grandpa, the one, the the grandpa who the Chinese exchange student is staying with, is horrible. Like, he's so well-intentioned and so terrible. And that is, like, it's there. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it, we're not supposed to love that character. So I think, like, for what seems on the surface, like, a pretty two-dimensional slapstick, stupid teen comedy there's depth and I feel like people would just tear me apart for saying this but I think you understand like I think there's some depth there yeah and I I think it'll be harder uh, with each generation that goes by the more detached we get from the 80s and what that really was I think the harder a pill it will be for people to swallow and you know we're, we're losing some good with that I think like he also take into consideration this was his first directorial film like he'd sold some screenplays before this Mr. Mom being the big high profile one but um, this was his first sort of at bat as a director and it way overperformed. it put him in a position where it's like your next project is greenlit basically whatever you want to do and that's where you know the breakfast club came in and that's where you know I think he tried to take teenage life seriously in a way that the rest of the 80s kind of weren't. I guess Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Say Anything sort of started and ended the decade in that way, but during the, the height of the 80s it was all John Hughes. Yeah, and, uh, and I mean, Fast Times has a lot of parallels, it's just less slapsticky I think. No, it's um, knowingly that, devastating at times. So Yeah, the, exactly, but the realism of like what sexual relations are like in high school is all there and like and it's kind of scary but um i don't want to leave 16 candles before we talk about like the most glorious side character ever written rice (laughs) in that movie and joan cusack like 
their little bits of time are so marvelous and they're like I'm sad that they don't get to eat, interact because I love them together but like yeah I just I love the Cusacks on that movie I'm so happy they're there and this is sort of our first glimpse at them. Like, like they, they, they're background characters, but they're occupying their own separate little worlds. But, like, I don't know, your eyes drawn to them. I, I always think of John Cusack, or Joan Cusack trying to drink from the water fountain. <laughs> Just the tragedy of the whole, the whole situation and her commitment <laughs> to the performance. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I love both of them. And... Uh, for a while, it was like, oh, that, that, that's the girl from 16 Candles until, no, that's that's Joan Cusack, that's John Cusack, and, and yeah. they are awesome. And yeah. uh, so good good on John Hughes for noticing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's funny that, like, honestly, like, John Cusack and Michael Shefflin do not have that different of looks. Like, they could play brothers, they could be interchangeable, but that John Cusack is the nerd... And, and like like an underling nerd <laughs> I kind of like because you know am I wrong saying that we were sort of in the the nerdier area of our high school and some of us were really hot I think it's accurate that sometimes <laughs> like people get branded nerds and then they like grow up into John Cusack <laughs> Lloyd Dobblers as it were <sighs> <laughs> But that is a tale for another day. Are we good for 16 Candles? I think we're good, yeah. It is now 7.06. You have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to ponder the error of your ways. Any questions? Yeah. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe? A brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse. I can't believe this is really happening to me. Before this day is over, they'll break the rules. <laughs> I hold this smoke. That's what it is. Bear their souls. I'm a nymphomaniac. Are your parents aware of this? Take some chances. Being bad feels pretty good. Huh? And touch each other in a way they never dreamed possible. Why'd you do that? Because I knew you wouldn't. The Breakfast Club. They only met once. I don't want to be alone anymore. You don't have to. But it changed their lives forever. I mean, I consider you guys my friend. We're going to talk about this little motion picture called The Breakfast Club, written and directed by this individual named John Hughes. Sounds good. <laughs> I know that you have strong feelings about this movie. I, I, um, I've seen it a million times. You've seen it a million times. And uh, it's one of those movies that I don't even know that I need to really necessarily go over the premise, right? A bunch of high school types are sent to detention on a Saturday where they are lorded over by their evil principal and uh, they get to know each other and they are assigned an essay to write just exactly who they think they are. Uh, the types that we get are sort of the high school princess, which is of course Molly Ringwald, the high school bad boy, which is uh, Judd Nelson, the brain or the nerd, which is uh, Anthony Michael Hall, and then we have the sort of weirdo outcast, Ali Sheedy. And then we have the sport, Emilio Estevez. By rules of 80s high school, they must have nothing to do with each other. But by the rules of the Breakfast Club movie, they must bond by the end of the day. 
But even so, the movie doesn't make any false promises necessarily about them being friends for life. It was just a way for them to see each other. It was one of the biggest teenage movies of the 80s. But does it still have weight and relevance in 2022? That is what I'm asking my dear friend Shoshana Green. Wow, that's a big question to pose to me. I guess I'm really, like, for me, I'm really hung up on how old I am and how this movie still has so much relevance to me at the age of 40-whatever. But, yeah, like, I would say it's hard to say. I pick up on a lot more that I don't think my kid would be appreciative of when I watch these movies now. So I'm going to say yes and no relevant and also a little bit too dated in some ways as much as that hurts me to say there are certain things i listened to a different podcast uh out of chicago called film spotting and they had uh well at the time it was ellen page <laughs> on their show and uh she was talking about uh this movie and how she was really built up to her and she was not a fan And it kind of rubbed me the wrong way because I love The Breakfast Club and I still love The Breakfast Club, but I immediately got defensive about it. She's like, yeah, why did Ali Sheedy have to get pretty so that she could be with Emilio Estevez? And I got mad, but then at the same time, yeah, she does have a point. I'm not sure that that's what the movie was about or that that, you know, uh, that the message of that particular corner of the movie is relevant. And of course, there is a scene where I don't know how I've looked past it for so long, but like Molly Ringwald is sexually assaulted. Yes, like yes, Judd Nelson so sticks his face yeah. in between her legs without her permission, and it's hilarious. <laughs> I I'm so conflicted about that scene, like so conflicted, and. Uh, yeah, like, it is still kind of hilarious, and... It's one of the things that dates him. it, though, right? It is. Well, the other thing is, as with so much from that era, and even more recently, there's just a thread of homophobia throughout everything. Yeah, the word fag was really <laughs> thrown around a lot in the 80s. It was... <laughs> I remember growing up as a child not even understanding that f- the word fag meant homosexual. I just, I knew it was a term of derision. It was like, <laughs> that's what you were called if you weren't doing good enough at sports or something. But like, yeah, it's definitely here throughout the movie. Uh, gay is negative. Gay is weak. Gay is bad. Um, and it's not even in the forefront. It's just in the language of the kids. And is that problematic? Yes. Is it authentic to the time the movie was made? Yes. Like, I can't defend it, but like, uh, go back to the movies of the 50s and 60s and watch how women are treated on screen. And not in a way that they're drawing attention to it or making a statement about it, you know? They are ruled and they are second-class citizens and they feel lucky to be so. So I feel like some part of it we have to like measure the fact that as much as it's hard for us to believe, this movie's 35 years old, like, and it's starting to show its age. 
But I do think the message of the movie and the heart of the movie is in its right place. But there was a time where I thought that The Breakfast Club was immortal and that it would be shown in high schools forever as like just a way to keep the peace, to tell people that everybody's got their own problems and as different or better as you may think you are from anyone else, everyone's locked in their own little place. And that point of the movie is what is timeless. Everything else about the movie is kind of not timeless. And then it sort of becomes, when did you see it and how attached to the 80s are you? I just like that you said showed in high schools because did you ever take psychology in our high school? I did. did, did are, are you allowed to like, name names of people? I don't know. Should we say Pam Beatty's name? I don't know. Yes. Show you the Breakfast Club? I, I'm pretty sure I saw it in school. I honestly can't remember if it was her class or not, but I do seem to think that we did watch The Breakfast Club at one point in class. We absolutely did, and she went from being like one of my favorite teachers to immortal in my <laughs> in my mind for showing this. And like, I also um, like I don't really think I got what was going on until she showed us to us in that class like for me it was it was like i saw this movie way too young um i think you were like also from a family that had super channel yeah okay so you would see like the same movies over and over for months right and they'd start playing about what like nine months to a year after they were done in the theater yeah and they just cycled them through yeah i started watching this movie when i was nine probably which is pretty young, I think. I haven't shown it to my 10-year-old yet. And so I, like, I don't know, Pam Beatty brought to my attention that there was, like, serious stuff going on here. <laughs> that it wasn't just, like, a cool dance scene and um, some, like, funny hairdos. We're overly so, preachy. Yeah. I mean, there is a scene where they all smoke weed and they bare their souls to each other. And as much as it is a bunch of exposition dump at the late act of the movie to make them sort of bond with each other, it feels very genuine. This is how young I was when I saw The Breakfast Club for the first time. I didn't understand the whole weed thing. Oh, me neither. Like, I didn't didn't get that they got high or that it was illegal or that, like, when he hid the the weed in the guy's underwear, like... (laughs) Like, that went right over my head. Funny thing happened, the same thing happened with Poltergeist when I was a kid. There's a scene in Poltergeist where the mom and dad are smoking weed while, after the kids go to bed. And it went right over my head when I was little. But watching it again now, it's quite funny. Oh, don't even get me started with what I thought was happening in Dirty Dancing. I did not <laughs> understand that Penny was pregnant. But, um, yeah, like, so many things. Like, I also did not notice all, like, the... The, what, like, 100 tampons come out of Ali Sheehy's purse that she dumps it out? Yeah. Or, um, what was the other thing? Oh, like, I didn't understand Brian and the gun, like, even though they say the words. I, so much of it was lost on me. It was like... Um, oh, you, you, like, literally couldn't understand what he was saying? Yeah, I, like, I didn't understand what the movie was about like I just remember snippets from this young age and I do not remember a time before I had seen The Breakfast Club <laughs> like it's been part of my existence for so long 
I, I like that the movie is honest about the kids. I mean, yeah, there's a couple of hookups, but because they were teenagers and they were together for eight hours, of course there was going to be some hookups. But, like, uh, I don't feel like they've bonded forever or that their dynamics have changed a lot. Judd Nelson's still a bully. Molly Ringwald's still a princess. They still kind of bully Brian into writing the essay. <laughs> like... He's the only one who actually does the assigned task, but he kills it. <laughs> he does. Um, but, like, again, when I'm a kid watching the movie, it's kind of a, a comedy, and it's directed at people, at that time, old, a little bit older than my age category, but, like, I wanted I wanted to be of that world. I wanted to, I wanted to be in The Breakfast Club when I saw it. And I think for John Hughes' movie... It's a little bit less wacky. All of his movies have moments where reality is broken. Even in this one, there's a scene where Emilio Estevez screams so loud that he shatters a glass door. I wrote a note, note about that. Yeah. Uh, and, well, and in Ferris Bueller, the whole parade sequence. Like, we've we've, oh. we've entered a whole different, like, kind of movie all of a sudden. But yeah. uh, I think in a weird way, The Breakfast Club is the most contained and real world of his movies. Whereas Weird Science was the most out there, create, like living in the, the imaginary world. Um, this was kind of his most grounded comedy that he made. Uh, and um, I think that's part of its strength. The tricky thing is, is where you go about ranking The Breakfast Club. Because we're going to be talking about a bunch of movies that I love, love, love. And how do I stack them on top of each other when they're as different as this? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. And but I just want to go back for a second. I know. Okay. Again, we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. But there's some like really real scenes in Uncle Buck. And oh, you know, for sure. I have watched it within recent, like within the last ten years. I haven't rewatched it. But like, I would say, like for all its wackiness, it it, it has some crazy thoughts. Yeah, no, for okay, sure, and we'll talk about that one too. But like, yeah. I think like for front to back on balance, for me, this is the yes. most quote unquote dramatic. Is that unfair? No, not at all. And I like back to your question at the beginning of the does it still have relevance? Like, I I kind of think one of the things that makes it like university universally relevant is the Bowie quote. No, at the yes. opening like he was making it relevant before and i don't think it ever stops being relevant like and we knew what he was talking about the movie may <laughs> age the music in the movie is still amazing <laughs> oh, so good so good I, I, I still have the soundtracks for uh, Pretty in Pink and The Breakfast Club, and they're, they're, they're like on the computer. They're not just like relics that I have on the shelf. I will listen to that shit from time to time, and it will put a smile on my face. Oh, yeah, for sure. They're both wonderful. <laughs> I, I have this note, and now, like, oh, I don't know if you're like this, you write things down, and then you're like, what did I write? What did that mean? <laughs> About the shattering glass, I wrote, is this the hughesiest of the hues? <laughs> like, that wackiness, just the, like, that moment of completely stepping out of reality. I think you're right, like, that is such a trademark of his. Yeah, and he will break reality if he thinks he'll get a laugh. 
Like he doesn't seem to mind as long as as long as the audience is willing to go with him and he can bring us back, he will completely break the rules. And uh, that is unique. That is a unique thing. Like a lot of the times with humor, if you're in the world of airplane or better off dead, like every part of the world is insane. You know, in John Hughes world, there's just little corners of the world that are insane. I mean, I don't think I'm alone here. Like, it's Bender's movie, right? Yeah. I kind of feel like it's Bender's movie. And there's the sexual assault scene. There's also a scene when they close the door to the library where he suggests suggests gang rape, right? (laughs) He's like, let's say we all get the prom queen pregnant. Yeah. I didn't think um, that that was serious, but he seriously stuffed his face in between her legs. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I didn't think it was serious either, but it's a throwaway line that, like, listening to it now, I hear it differently from when I listened to it then. And we live in a different world than then, like, you know? It's it's interesting that we're not asked to judge that character at all. Like, the fact that he's an (laughs) asshole, the fact that he's a bully, I guess because his dad beats him up, that makes everything he does okay oh and he's attractive if he was not attractive he would not get away with any of this behavior he's also about like 31 when yeah the well that's like, that's the so 80s <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's so old but yeah he like he's so attractive and that's why he gets away with the with the assault yeah and but like what I like is how he goes from being like this kind of jackass. Like he gets his big moment with the cigar burn on the arm, but then when they start talking about clubs in the in the heart to heart scene, and he's talking about how like <laughs> how the how the academic clubs are still clubs, demented and sad but social, right? And uh, and and he's suddenly like he's on this other level and he's like this voice of reason and he sees what nobody else sees which is like the bigger picture how everybody has their like social circles and the things that matter to them and it's it's just he that's why i think he's like that's where he's kind of timeless he's sort of like if the movie was going to have a narrator it would be better right well, I like that it's not simple with him and like a lot of the things that aren't simple. It's interesting how the movie goes out of its way to vilify the uh, the, the principal who, you know, has grown to really resent and, and on some level hate these kids and think just sort of like you and I were talking about before we recorded how, you know, everything's changed so rapidly and he doesn't understand this new young age. And at the same time, the sort of quiet, positive adult role model is the custodian. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like uh, be nice and don't set high goals is more valued in Q's world than, you know, become lord of your old school, but become a tyrant, become this terrible bully, right? Yeah, and... and- I love Carl's little dress down of the principal on why he became a teacher and getting time off and all that. And, uh, at, like, later in the library, he points out that the clock's fast and Bender, like, gets the smile on his face, like, Carl's on our side. Carl's got it figured out. Uh, fun yeah. fact, fun bit of trivia for you. You know who was originally going to play the custodian? 
Canadian Rick Moranis. <laughs> yeah, he was cast, but I guess he decided he wanted to do it with this weird accent, and it wasn't jibing with uh, John Hughes. He just decided it wasn't working, so they ended up uh, going different ways on it. Oh my god, but so it, much about that is amazing. It could have been a very different movie there, hey? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so he went back to, like, his big guy, right? Like, <laughs> the guy who plays Carl. Yeah, well, and that actor, I can't remember his name right now, he uh, he shows up in a lot of John Hughes movies. Yeah. Yeah, he seems to be loyal, especially to his sort of B and C level cast members. You'll see yeah. a lot of the same faces in one scene roles in John Hughes movies, so. Him and, like, the the uh, the, maitre, the maitre d' at Shaky. Yep. Yeah. So I guess yeah. what I'm saying is is that overall, I think that The Breakfast Club is still, to my mind, immortal. But I am coming to understand with time and age that it's not going to be that for everyone the way I once thought it did. You know, it would be. If you love the 80s and if you love John Hughes, I don't have to talk you into The Breakfast Club. But... If it missed you by more than 10 or 15 years, it might just not be for you. And it breaks my heart to say that, but I don't know. I guess that's just the curse of time. I, I, I think you really like hit the nail on the head there because, sorry for the cliche, I hate it. But um, <laughs> that is like exactly how I feel. Like I want this to be the greatest movie ever made. And at a time me, it was. It kind of is. Yeah. And I, like, I think of it daily and it's not gonna be that for my kid i once had a mixtape a cassette mixtape that had quotes from the breakfast club interspersed amongst the tracks that's how stupid for the movie i was i love it is there anything else you want to say about breakfast club or do you think we covered it just that like when i was watching it i was like you're right ali sheedy when you get old, your heart does die. And honestly, like, in my mind, I fell probably somewhere between Ali Sheedy and Brian as far as, like, where I would be in the group. In my heart, I want to be more in the Ali Sheedy corner, but in reality, I was probably much more <laughs> the, the nerd. But um, I do like that no matter where you fit in that spectrum, I bet you you can find a couple characters to relate to here. And... A lot of things have aged about the movie. I don't think that will. It's getting pretty tough coming up with new illnesses. <coughs> it's a little childish, but then so is high school. Annie, you're not going to school like this. Call if you need us. They bought it. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Bueller. Cameron Dave. Get dressed and come on over. Bueller. He has been absent nine times. Bueller. My father spent three years restoring this car. Ooh. I guess that's my dad. What are we gonna do? What aren't we going to do? Why should he get to ditch? Something's going on. Say, Ferris. Bueller. I hate him. Life moves pretty fast. You're crazy! If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. 
He's very popular, Ed. They think he's a righteous dude. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, an immortal movie of my childhood. If I had nothing to do, there was a couple of VHS tapes in my house that I would just put on, and that's what I would do. One of them had the Star Wars trilogy, one of them had a couple of Star Trek movies, and one of them had a bunch of recorded episodes of ALF. (laughs) And that's right, I said it, ALF, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and I watched the shit out of it. (laughs) Um... The, again, with the whole how do we assess John Hughes in the new age, there is a sort of new layer of paint that's been put on Ferris Bueller's Day Off now that it's, it's getting long in the tooth. That Ferris Bueller is not this role model nice guy, that he is in fact a manipulative sociopath. <laughs> and that maybe he's not, you know, the best thing to happen to everyone's life. Like, is he your best friend or is he your worst enemy? He certainly doesn't take no for an answer, and he certainly gets his way by sheer force of will. But he's played by Matthew Broderick, and he's got this really nice, fun, bouncy energy to him. And as much as I can understand this sort of retooling of, like, this view of Ferris, I can't fully bring myself to making Ferris a a villain. There's two scenes in the movie that very definitely, I think, salvage his personality, and we can talk about that one when they get there. But do those two scenes justify <laughs> the rest of the movie? But, um, you know, it, it, it fires on all cylinders. It has a one-scene role from Charlie Sheen <laughs> that kicks ass, and we weren't going to see that again until being John Malkovich. <laughs> we had... Uh, Jennifer Grey, is this before or after Dirty Dancing? I'm not Uh, sure of the timeline. Right after, no, right before. Right before. It's 86, I think. Dirty Dancing's 88. I think we're just, the movie is just loaded with names that are about to explode in popularity but hadn't yet. I think he was pretty (laughs) prescient with some of that casting. Ferris decides he doesn't want to go to school, so he... (laughs) puts an elaborate hoax over his parents, which we as the audience see through and are laughing at, but which his parents completely commit to 1,000%, which (laughs) starts the movie off on such a nice, hilarious-like way. Ferris is being a little shit, but we're absolutely on side with him and we're sort of enjoying him getting away with it. And that's the vibe that the movie asks you to follow, you know? Cheer for Ferris. Don't fight this movie. And if you don't fight this movie, you're going to have a whole lot of fun, I think. So, uh, he gets his buddy Cameron, he gets his girlfriend out of school by faking her grandmother's death, and they hit Chicago, which is, this is another thing that makes us as John Hughes as anything, and they do everything that you could ever possibly do in Chicago in, like, four hours. <laughs> so... Again, it's ridiculous, but it's funny. It's got heart, but I don't think it's anywhere near as deep as, say, The Breakfast Club, or at times some of the other movies tend to be. But where it may not be deep, it is hilarious and full of energy. So I will never say a bad thing about Ferris Bueller's Day Off, sociopath or not. (laughs) I'm going to have to say, like, I know 
know we shouldn't throw around the term genius lightly, but I think you and I have both, like, at different times talked about John Hughes as perhaps having been a genius. And something that, like, as a parent of an adolescent, I see a lot is, like, people talking about the uh, prefrontal cortex development. And, like, I almost feel like he's not a sociopath. He does not have a completely formed brain. Like, he is... He is the epitome of childhood moving into adulthood. I don't think he's doing anything wrong. Honestly, I know that sounds awful, but, like, he's manipulating the system. He's incredibly smart, and he's doing what he wants, which is what kids want to do. So, I like, I argue against the sociopath uh, idea. I feel like John Hughes, if he knew one thing really well, it was the teenage psyche. And I don't think that he's committing crimes, you know? I mean, did they commit crimes? Um, I don't remember any crimes being committed. He's pathologically kind of selfish at times. And manipulate the system, play the the inept uh, principal, and make him look a buffoon all you want. <laughs> the manipulation of your friend and your girlfriend... <laughs> um, the way he is completely committed to Sloan and yet will hit on any attractive woman that he sees is kind of an interesting dichotomy. But I think uh, he does care for both of them. He might be fickle and he might run on an engine of moment to moment, but his love for Sloan and for uh, um, Cameron is real. And that's why we can like him and not think he's like a, a sociopath for me a sociopath like either on some kind is, is emotionally dead or doesn't have any like genuine emotions and doesn't feel like other people are affected when when ferris bueller offers to take the hit for for the destruction of the automobile at the end of cameron that would have undone his entire existence as ferris bueller but he was willing to take that on the chin for his friend he didn't end up having to but he made the offer, and I believed it when he said it. <laughs> so, agreed. I I just like to think he's running a little high on it. I don't. Yeah, I don't see the divorce from emotion. I feel like he feels emotions very deeply, and but I also feel that he's um, like he is committed to her, and I, you probably know this because you know much more movie things than I do, but like. John Hughes married his Sloan. Oh, really? Yeah, his wife was captain of the cheerleader. They were high school sweethearts, and they got married and stayed together. There you go. And I, like, after reading that, I'm like, ooh, he really, really did believe in, like, young love, I think. Like, how could you not? Well, that actually does make the peace fall into place. Like, the last scene with Sloan, as, as Ferris is running away, she says, I'm going to marry him. And that's always read as kind of sweetly naive to me. <laughs> like... <laughs> This first love of my life will be the greatest and only love of my life. But if that's a true story from John Hughes, then uh, I shall I shall adjust that response. But that's how I feel, and then I choose to see him going back to talk to the girls in, in bikinis as he's like madly dashing to get home. Yes. Um, I choose to see that as networking. <laughs> Time um, was yeah. of the essence, though. <laughs> But that's what made it funny. And I think that just might have been a, a case of him going for the laugh over, you know, how much sense it made, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And same with, um, 
with the um the screen where he has like he as he's talking to I think it's to Mr. Rooney or to Cameron on the phone at the beginning, he's like drawing a very pixelated naked girl yes. on his computer. <laughs> and I felt like that was pretty out of character for him too, but maybe that's just rounding him out. He is just a boy. He's a teenage boy, and he has a, a shitty 80s computer, and somebody thought that that's what a teenage boy would do with a shitty 80s computer. <laughs> so, this okay, definitely to... has the problem you were talking about earlier of high school students who are clearly not high school students. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I have two pressing questions that have driven me crazy about this movie for my entire life. Okay, please. Since I first saw it. Okay, so question one. Is Jeannie the younger sister? Because he's supposed to be graduating, but how did she get a car before him? It makes no sense. Twins. Pardon? They're twins. Are you serious? Problem solved. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. That makes their dating each other in real life a little bit grosser. (laughs) That they then, played twins. If they were twins, it would be a lot grosser. <laughs> okay, they're twins. Um, and then the other thing is the timeline of the whole, like, um, Cameron, did you see me change out of my clothes by the jacuzzi? I thought you were catatonic. Right. Like, I've never understood the scene. That is some stranger's hot tub, right? That's not any of their houses. Yeah, I'm not clear on the location at all. <laughs> and, like, did she change? Like, she's wearing her underwear in the hot tub, and he's not catatonic by the end. Continuity errors drive me crazy, and there's a few in this movie. So this is, that's just, it's not so much that I think you can answer it as that I need to point out this horrific continuity uh, error that drives me crazy. Yeah, again, I guess uh, I w- there was no content, but I didn't, I didn't get hung up on the continuity, but I did wonder if, like, was she changing in front of him as a test to see if he was legitimately out of it? Or, or like, that that just seemed like a weird move for Sloan. Yes, um, indeed. Sarah, what's the name of the actress? Oh, it's going to bug me now. Who plays Sloan? Um, Mia Sarah? Mia Sarah. So, true story. I'm sitting on the back porch of a house on University Drive in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan in the late 1900s and walking down the back alley behind the house is Mia Sarah and an elephant. I knew you were going to say and an elephant because a mutual friend of ours named Jansen worked on that film. There you go. But at the time I had no idea that this incredible elephant movie was being shot in Saskatoon. (laughs) And I honestly had this moment where like, is this what going crazy feels like? Because that's yep. me as Sarah. Like, that is Ferris Bueller's girlfriend. And that's a fucking elephant. <laughs> what is happening? And useless, I think. I know that doesn't have a lot to do with Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but I couldn't find another way to tell that story. So no, it's a great story. That, that's a true thing that happened to me. Um, Jeffrey Jones. Yeah, I, I don't know what to do about that. He is a hilarious comic actor, and he is a pedophile. <laughs> And that's a hard thing to reconcile. Because I spent a lot of my life thinking that dude was fucking hilarious. And I guess the subsequent facts don't make his performances not funny. But it does make it harder for me to laugh at. 
The good news is that he is such a foil to Ferris and his sister in this movie that he spends most of the movie getting humiliated and beaten up. So it's got like, it's like the same sort of benefit that a lot of the evil Kevin Spacey roles have. So now when you watch Seven with Kevin Spacey, it it, it, it works even better because we hate Kevin Spacey. <laughs> Yep, that's how I felt when Jeannie threw the wallet into the backyard at the end. I was like, yes! Yeah. Eat the principal evil dog. But that is unfortunate, and we're bumping into it more and more these days with, like, uh, you know, I maybe it's... Again, I, I cannot endorse his behavior, but, like, until I knew that about him, I was such a fan of Jeffrey Jones. It's Agreed. really, really difficult for me. Agreed. Like, like, I can't stand here and say that was a terrible performance or that I didn't get a lot of pleasure out of that performance or think that he was hilarious for a lot of years. The whole end credit scenes of this movie, running over the credits, is basically the principal slowly hitting his rock bottom. And it is so fucking hilarious. Like, I hate that this has been tarnished by realities. Like... Ferris Bueller needs to exist in this fun escapist fantasy way where the real world can't let any light get into it. And uh, unfortunately, that is something that does distract from Ferris Bueller these days. It's true, as does, like, the Charlie Sheen reality. <laughs> Again, Charlie Sheen's in it for, like, two scenes, and he's playing a guy who's arrested for drugs. <laughs> like, But he is so hot. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, no part of me does not find Charlie Sheen hot in that scene. It's been over 30 years. That's fascinating to hear. I found him hot in that scene. In that scene, okay. Not generally Charlie Sheen is hot, no, but in Ferris Bueller, no, Charlie no, Sheen is hot. In that scene and in Lucas. Okay, I will accept that. <laughs> I always um, am bewildered at some of the, quote, uh, Hollywood people that are considered hot. Like... <laughs> But Charlie Sheen's always been one of them to me, but he, he, he not, I'm not his target audience, so hopefully he won't take that personally. <laughs> it's like, there's something about every part of him in that scene, like, they knew what they were doing. They mm. made him so hot, and then, um, sorry, I got distracted because my, my Little one preschooler came was screaming <laughs> just now for my husband. Um, but yeah, the... The scene with him and Jeannie is like, I mean, that's kind of every dorky high school girl's dream, right? And Jeannie got her win. He's been arrested for drugs, and he offers to put his thumb up his ass. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All of his answers are perfect. (laughs) So odd. And then, okay, and then, like, another thing that I love that John Hughes does is, like, when he writes little songs into the background, the Shauna Jean song that he puts in there. Ugh. It's just beautiful. Or when Cameron was in Egypt land. (laughs) Yes, and people do that. You never see that in movies, but that is the kind of weird idiosyncratic thing that people really do. It is. It is. And just like that end scene with Cameron, like Cameron doesn't get a lot in this movie, I don't think. But the scene where he says he's going to take the heat, I was like, I think I was bawling this time, because it is going to be so much heat, and like, again, I feel like this is where there is a little more depth to this movie, like, John 
knows what it's like to be ignored and that's another theme right like that's the Ali Sheedy character again they ignore me but Alan Ruck brings the pain in that scene and uh, that's what really makes it work and it almost seems out of out of tune with the rest of the movie not in a bad way necessarily but we have not gone this seriously dramatic or anywhere close to it until that scene happens which gives it more impact just something that occurred to me the first time watching this why is his mom a caterer when she lives in a like six billion dollar house everybody in John Hughes universe lives in Chicago well beyond their means (laughs) like well beyond they live in palaces (laughs) but they still work full time jobs so like I don't know how that works, but uh, I think it's just sort of the John Hughes setting. Like, uh, Chicago at Thanksgiving is his heaven, right? <laughs> yeah. But he also has, like, I-, I think we can say a pretty big chip on his shoulder about, like, the Richies versus the whatever, the Skids. Like, they get called the Richies in one of the movies, I think, don't they? Like, yeah, well, there's this like ancient sort of comic thing sort of snob versus slob mentality you know like the poorer wackier cooler noisier people they may be rowdy and lower form but they got more heart and personality than those uptight stuffy rich people up in their mansion right right uh i think that's just sort of a a a pretty well-worn used sort of comic treatise than it is just john hughes but it's definitely present well, there's the comic thing, but in, in some of the movies that we won't be visiting, like Pretty in Pink, mm-hmm. there is like a real issue with financial dispari- disparity, and same with Some Kind of Wonderful, right? Well, Some Kind and, of Wonderful is just Pretty in Pink with a better ending. Let's be real. And a way better leading man. Like, <laughs> I can't even... I, I, I don't understand the attraction with Charlie Sheen, but I absolutely understand the attraction to Eric Stoltz. He just needs it's to be so held. That's what he physical. needs. I know. It's so much more than just his, like, beautiful face. Everything about him and that character. But, but we but digress. Like, we do digress. But I do think that, like, I was almost watching this and I'm like, is, is Cameron, like, the super rich? And then, like... Ferris's parents are kind of the like the working class who only have like a five hundred thousand dollar home or yeah. whatever it would be in those days. And like they right, like they don't have a Ferrari, they have like beaters. Yeah. And a station wagon. So I don't know, I see the class thing as appearing in all of his films and I don't think it's all for comedy. I think um I think it's, like, something that was close to his heart, but I have never read anything to Well, that. at the risk of sounding unkind, too, I think that a lot of people sort of imagine their experience being not that different from everyone else's. So if he grew up affluent in Chicago, he, and that was his experience of things, maybe that's just how he imagines most people's. I don't know. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly. But uh, going back to Ferris Bueller's Day. Yes, um, sorry. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, the whole episode is about John Hughes, but um, there are... One of the things that John Hughes is getting in trouble with, uh, and we're going to definitely talk about it with 16 Candles, is the uncomfortable racial sort of stereotypes that go on. And as I recall, there are two people of color in the movie. 
and they steal the car and take it for a joyride. That is true. That is true. The weird thing is, is that I like those guys. They pull one over on everybody. They're like... Ferris is super condescending to him. (laughs) And, uh, you know, gives him a $5 tip and tells him to make sure to take really good care of the car, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, no, they didn't do a good job of there. But, like, it was one of those things where I thought the delivery of his one line, <laughs> nothing to worry about, it was just perfect. <laughs> and uh, in, instead of judging those guys, I was like, fucking good for you, man. Those kids were super shitty to you. Those privileged white kids totally talked down to you. Fuck and them. English exchange. <laughs> so I don't think it was what was intended, but... Uh, I, I will defend it in this movie. It is incredibly unfortunate that I, unless I'm forgetting something, they're like the only <laughs> black faces in the movie. Like, whoops. They are, and I have wrestled with this with John Hughes before too, and I like to think that he was trying to show it like it was, and I don't think it's a stretch for the valets to have been Hispanic and black in Chicago in a fancy place. Yeah. Then, and because, like, I'm overwhelmingly anywhere that there's a parking attendant, like, I don't know, it's something I still see today. Like, If Ferris Bueller was working as a parking attendant, which he would, of course, never lower himself to do, but if he was... He would do that exact thing. <laughs> he would do that too, but I was just trying to say that, like, we still have a division between, like, jobs yes. for different people's backgrounds. I'm, like, getting into dangerous territory here. I don't believe in racism. No. John Hughes saw it and reported on it. I feel like I try to see it as a journalism kind of thing. And I think it's easier to make that case for Ferris than it will be moving forward. Yes. And, and I agree. I think those characters are like, we are supposed to cheer for them. Yeah. Like, again, I don't remember, I don't remember clocking it as a kid, but watching it now, I clocked it and I was on their side. So yes. it bothered me less. But it's one of those things that if, you, if you're looking for something to pick, if you wanted to make an issue out of it, I suppose you could. But it's impossible to hate Ferris Bueller's Day Off because all it really wants to do is put a smile on your face. And, you know, Matthew Broderick just throwing exposition out to the audience, breaking that fourth wall, charmed him so completely that it wasn't until, like, he made that terrible Godzilla movie. Like, he got got a free pass for, like, 20 years because of Ferris Bueller's Day Off that we just instantly liked him because, ah, it's Matthew Broderick. He played Ferris Bueller. (laughs) He is Ferris Bueller. He didn't just play him. Like, he will always be that guy and I will always be totally smitten with Ferris Bueller at that age like I don't care how weird it sounds I regress to being a teenager when I see that movie and I am smitten for him he is yeah like he's the perfect guy even though he is kind of a jerk and I think that it's a really hard thing to pull off the affable asshole thing which, like, Matthew Broderick and Bill Murray and Steve Gutenberg sort of kind of perfected throughout the 80s, that thing is going away. And as much as I enjoy the affable assholes, 
I kind of get it. Like, when you get down to it, Ferris Bueller is pathologically selfish. When you get down to it, Venkman from Ghostbusters is a sexist prick. When you get down to it, you know, a lot of our you know, wacky, you know, rough-around-the-edges heroes are kind of just assholes. But because they're cute and they're charming, we let it go. And, um, I, think, I, think, I think Jason Bateman has been trading on that character for decades. That's like, right. Getting into like the later seasons of... Um, please help me. Arrested Development? Yes. Like, you kind of realize he's still a blues. Like, he's very selfish. And he's cute. And don't, no spoilers, I haven't seen the last couple seasons of Ozark. I still plan to. But, like, he's no saint. Yeah. But you still love him because he's cute. Like, yeah. it may be vanishing, but I feel like he's trying to keep that. Well, and he sort of made cut his teeth in the 80s, too. And that, that was where that thing sort of came to the forefront. And, um, yeah. Yeah, they they're not they're not perfect, but they're presented as perfect. Uh, I I mean, I don't know what more I can say about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's if wall to wall funny, like everything works in it. It I don't think there's anything in it that really pumps the brakes as far as dating the movie to the '80s too badly, unless you don't like the music montages, in which case the problem is you. <laughs> like, yes, agreed, agreed. <laughs> If okay. you need to smile, put a smile on your face. It's one of those movies that's going to do it for you. Okay. I cannot, sorry, it's really hard, like, with not being face-to-face to pick up cues. Nope. I just want to say that I cannot get my hands on the song Beat City, and I love that song, and it is such a good song. Well, I'll see if I can fix that for music. you, girl. Okay. <laughs> appreciate is, it. Yeah, is there I anything else you want to say about Ferris? Just, like... I just never want to stop loving it. Yeah. I don't want to live in a world where I don't love that movie. And this movie may have the legs that Breakfast Club, unfortunately, doesn't. Agreed. Boom. During holiday travel, some people get delirious. Some get delayed. And some get... <laughs> Del Griffin. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. Neil Page got all three. I was on my way home to spend a nice holiday with my family. Instead, I'm in a motel bed with a stranger. So instead of Thanksgiving with his family, he's spending three days with the turkey. <laughs> John Candy statement is I can't believe that I'm now older than John Candy ever lived to be. Well, I do think that John Candy's relationship with John Hughes was an important one. He would show up in cameos in some of his other movies, free of charge. Shows up in career opportunities, shows up in Home Alone. He has little, like, roles that he'll pop up in, and uh, they love to improvise together. I think they were great, creative sort of colleagues. And I do think that the death of John Candy had a significant impact on John Hughes, the man. Uh, I think a lot of scripts that he was working on that he had John Candy involved in or like he just abandoned rather than even pretending that he could recast them. And he reinvested in sort of the curly Sioux end of the arena, the Macaulay Culkin end of the arena where all of his scripts centered around cute little precocious kids and they became much more built on how saleable they were as opposed to his, you know, John Hughes fingerprints being on it. 
and they'd been aware of each other. They'd known each other. John Candy was in vacation, but it was planes, trains, and automobiles where the relationship crystallized, and it was the perfect role for John Candy. Like, I can't imagine who else you could get to do it that would maintain the heart, but um, it was this perfect cast. Steve Martin's the uptight businessman, and... John Candy's the laid-back shower curtain ring salesman, and they're on this quest to get to Chicago, and it becomes this epic, you know, hellscape journey where everything that can go wrong does go wrong. They they lose their money. They lose. They're repeatedly de- de- derailed by weather and <laughs> equipment failure, and they can't escape not even only the situation but each other. And um, when, spoilers, when I was putting the list together, the only easy part about the list for me was last place and first place. For me, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was always going to be my number one John Hughes movie. Why? Because I think the balance is perfect between the comedy and the character work and the actual emotional core of the movie which I think, if we're honest with ourselves, is fucking devastating. Yeah. Um, because when the credits roll and we get the freeze frame on, you know, John Candy and everything like that, he, this family's not going to adopt him. You know, like, he's going to have a nice dinner with them and, and, you know, he'll he'll leave with a full belly and probably some money in his pocket. But his life is not going to change. And his life is a daily upsetting tragedy. And I don't think he and Neil are going to be best friends forever. You know, they might see each other every now and then. But these people are in different worlds and they get forced to coexist together. And the results are simultaneously hilarious and heartbreaking. And I think it's the best comedy that the 80s produced. So I'm kind of a big fan. (laughs) Am I overselling planes, trains and automobiles? Um, well, here's the thing, is I've known since you, like, first asked me to do this back in 2017, <laughs> that this would be your first choice, right. and I contemplated putting it as mine, because I knew that, like, ooh, I might win a prize, right? <laughs> but I, I can't, and it's very near the top for me, but, like, I will carry the torch for Ferris Bueller until the day that I die. <laughs> I feel you. Um, and I recognize that Planes, Trains is a more palatable movie now like uh, not palatable like it, it stands the test of time is what I'm trying to say Ferris maybe doesn't yeah but my heart belongs to him right. now, that said I know it's a marvelous movie and I'm not sure I agree with you with the ending and like personally seeing the freeze frame that and there's a similar freeze frame at the end of Uncle Buck yeah I see this as like John Hughes almost deifying John Candy like this is our angel this is what's going to save us is this character he is the goodness in humanity and I just think that John Hughes believed in fairy tale endings I'm not sure that Neil doesn't turn around John Candy's life I'm not sure that at all because I'm pretty sure that Ferris marries Sloane and I'm pretty sure that you know Claire and not Claire. Yeah, Claire and Bender have a nice long relationship. Like, I see him being all teenage relationships end game. 
and I thought that before I found out, you know, as I mentioned last time, that he married his high school sweetheart. So, absolutely, planes, trains, and automobiles is devastating, but I'm not sure that it's going to stay that way. Right. I think he likes the beautiful possibility that this amazingly, like, strangely strong man, John Candy, who's been homeless for eight years. Yeah. And just driving around selling shower curtain rings, making friends with everybody, that he's gonna, you know, get some help from this buddy and maybe settle down in Chicago. I mean, maybe, we don't know. I remember going to see that movie with my parents in the theater. And we were walking out of the theater and, like, my parents were discussing the highlight reel. Wasn't it funny when they woke up in bed together? Wasn't it funny when he got picked up by the falls? And wasn't it funny when this happened? And I chimed in and said, I actually think it was really sad. It was, it actually stuck with me, the ending. Like, he was homeless that whole time and we didn't know. And uh, it was one thing when, like, he was just irritated by this weird Canadian guy. I love that he was reading a book called The Canadian Mounted. (laughs) Um, Like, he was just this irritating but sweet guy. But when we found out that he was literally homeless and that this misadventure that Gil was considering the worst three days of his life was a pretty average day for for the John John Candy character... That was sort of the thing that stuck with me about the movie. And we can all make up what happened. We don't know, you know. (laughs) But uh, it's like we caught up with him. It's really well handled. Steve Martin's on his way home. And he's just doing the same thing my parents were doing outside the theater. He was reliving all the stupidity of the previous three days and laughing to himself. And then he realizes, holy shit, this guy got me home for Thanksgiving. But he has nowhere to go. And it's really funny, though. (laughs) No, I just... um, I don't know. I see this as, like, the... non-sexual male equivalent of the nerdy girl getting the guy. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to stick to my idea that John Hughes is all about the fairy tale ending and that we think things are going to turn around. I'm not trying to make you cry, girl. (laughs) No, but like, but it is like, and I mean, I I have always thought that, I mean, maybe he's not, maybe everyone recognizes that Steve Martin's a genius. I've always thought that he was a little underrated and pigeonholed and that people have not seen like The Spanish Prisoner and like even Grand Canyon. He's brilliant in Grand Canyon. Like Steve Martin has the range that like, so few people have. Yeah, but he's kind of known as being the funny guy. Yeah, but he's got like a Gary Oldman-esque range, I think. Right. And you see almost all of it in this movie, like right at the beginning when he's running to catch the cab, he's doing the Steve Martin running arm pump, and like just it's just a fraction of a second of brilliant physical comedy, and I almost pee myself laughing when I see it. And then like the moment of the realization that that is it Margie Mary Marie 
Marie is dead. Yeah. And has been dead for a really long time. And that he thinks this this guy has a wife to go home to and then suddenly realizes he doesn't. And he does his, like, Steve Martin serious face. And it's, like, really touching. And <laughs> Well, and, and even when he's not doing serious face when he's yeah. angry for most of the movie if you're not a good actor that will rub off on the audience and we will stop liking you but yeah. when he unloads on that that woman for the car yeah. rental agency we are absolutely on side with him when he even loses his temper with john candy the first time we want him to stop because we can see how much it's hurting john candy but we understand <laughs> where this is coming from like we understand why he is this upset and i think that's a trickier line to walk in a way because he could just be this bully asshole who has no time for people who are beneath him and that's not usually how it comes across that's there it's a little bit in his character but uh he's just a dude who's exhausted and wants to get home and just couldn't be less interested in anything that this guy has to say right now and, you know, don't take your socks off when you're sitting next to somebody on an airplane. That is a huge social faux pas, you know? Like. And, and yet, you know, I've ridden a city bus in Toronto with someone clipping their toenails. Oh, for sure. So, <laughs> it's so there. And then, like, and then, obviously, when it is, com like, comedy moments with both of them, it's, like, it's almost too much to bear. Like, the two of <laughs> Being funny at the same time on the same screen um specifically driving the burned down car the burned out car and getting stopped by the police and trying to like just bonding together and making this it's just like it's like too much genius it's so hard it's when they hard. break into the uh mini fridge and start drinking the rum and uh, just start tallying the cost of the day and just they kind of fall in love with each other in that scene but a few hours before that scene he was really considering leaving the guy outside to freeze to death in the cold but you get a little bit of rum in him and all of a sudden he's a softie again <laughs> the classic scene that I mentioned uh, where he flips out at the rental agency to Edie McClurg, I want a fucking car right fucking now. That scene gave the movie an R rating. It was the reason that Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is rated R. To the point where if he'd taken that movie, that out of the movie, it probably would have made significantly more at the box office because people could have brought their kids. But John Hughes was like, no. Every fucking fuck needs to be in that fucking scene. <laughs> and it's funny because we haven't heard him talk like that. Like, we've seen him lose his temper. But, like, this is a whole new layer. It's right. It, it mirrors sort of Clark Griswold at the end of the first vacation movie. <laughs> when he finally loses it in front of the family. Like, it's earned. And if they would have pulled the punches or bleeped it or somehow softened it, it just wouldn't have been the same. And I have so much respect for, like, John Hughes not letting the money factor into that decision. You know, like, people will rent it. It'll be fine. It's, you know, it's a high-profile comedy with Steve Martin and John Candy. It's at least going to break even, right? <laughs> so I want that scene in my movie. And that scene stays in the movie. And I, I really, like, I love it. I know. I love it, too. It's amazing. Um, yeah, 
and it's like I mean that and that those aren't pillows those are the things that like pop into my head when I think of plants trains and automobiles but like um I have to say it as like run-of-the-mill homophobia in John Hughes movies I find that one the least offensive I think it's like the most just like honest mistake and they're just like grossed out by it (laughs) and it got ass cheeks of course you're gonna jump out of bed and be uncomfortable (laughs) (laughs) what has happened and it's it's just it reminds me of uh bill and ted's excellent adventure when when bill thinks ted's been killed and then ted hops out and he hugs him and then they both back up and say fag (laughs) like yeah, it's like this one note in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure where you kind of go, oh, that's unfortunate, but it reads authentic, right? Like, he authentically loved that Ted was okay, and he hugged him, and then he rebuked himself for the hug. So it's more of, like, their own issues with it than anything else. And uh, it was more funny, their reaction to waking up in a cuddle. And it's both because they're half asleep and missing their wives, right? It was like... <laughs> they cuddled in their sleep and it's fucking adorable <laughs> it, it is and then they jump up and start talking about baseball yeah yeah see that game was a great game but but yeah <laughs> it's like it, it's one of those jokes that i feel bad about liking but i laugh every single time like every single time well, and the movie's populated with great little character beats. I can't remember, I always forget the name of this actor, but the guy who picks him up in the pickup truck with the dog in the back and his wife, and he spits into his hand before he shakes. That actor I've seen all over the place. He's been in Spider-Man movies, he was in that weird happiness movie playing a pedophile. Because of happiness. Like, yeah. I, he makes my stomach turn over and, like, go in my mouth every time I think. <laughs> I think his name is Dylan something or other. Dylan Baker, maybe? Dylan. I think so. Uh, he's like, he is an amazing character actor. <laughs> Absolutely. Michael McKeon from Spinal Tap is the cop who pulls them over for some reason, right? Love it. And uh, Kevin Bacon in the, like, taxi-stealing scene, just for a quick moment. Possibly the same character from She's Having a Baby. There's okay. also a scene where Steve Martin calls home, and his wife is watching a scene from She's Having a Baby on her TV, and that movie wasn't released yet. Those were dailies from She's Having a Baby, which was basically being shot back-to-back with planes, trains, and automobiles. Amazing. <laughs> Something that I only noticed this watch around, and like, I'm really sad that they didn't make this choice, was that um, Ferris's dad is at the table. That's right. Beginning, and I actually like went on to IMDb to... like remember what his name was and he's not playing the same character and I'm like why? Why Why is he not the same character? (laughs) Like Tom and John or something like that but like Oh he was in New York he'd have to be in uh, Chicago to be Ferris's dad I guess he could have been on a business trip No because they talk about going home Right They both and he's also flying home and taking a different flight so he gets there but anyway it's still He's so good. Yeah, and Michael McKean, it's, it's always a pleasure to see him on a screen. But, opinion. like, all of the little, like, one-scene roles, the cab driver that takes him into town, the, the dude that they have to bribe to get to, into the hotel. <laughs> Do you have $50 and a really nice watch? <laughs> like, 
There's nobody's wasted in any John Hughes movies. There's no bit player that doesn't at least have a moment. It feels like where they feel like they exist in a in a world. All the people that he sells earrings to seem to have their own complete backstory, and I have so much respect for this. <laughs> saying earlier about earlier about Joan Cusack is she has a whole little backstory <laughs> built in. in like whatever happened to her that required the neck brace um and you're right he doesn't throw away lines he doesn't throw away characters yeah my, my favorite side character is in some kind of wonderful the the guy who draws his girlfriend without his skin and I'm blanking on his real Elias Cateus great <laughs> Canadian actor Elias <laughs> Yeah, and uh, that's something that uh, I think that we start to see less of later in his work. I was missing that in Curly Sue, for instance. I felt like our main characters were pretty richly rendered, and everybody else was starting to fit into the background or fade into the background a little bit. Whereas, again, I felt a whole world populated by John Hughes characters here. I don't know if we're switching to Curly Sue, but the thing that I wanted to bring up before is back to his recognition of Chicago talent. There's a Steve Carell cameo in there, and it's not a cameo because he's no one at the time, but, like, (laughs) he recognizes talent and just, like, in in an amazingly special way. Yeah. Like, for Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, I don't think that there was another duo that would have made that work. Like... I could see, I guess, like someone saying, I don't know, um, Nick Nolte and Danny DeVito or something like that. But like, I just, I can't see it working in any way near as well as it does here. And the balance is perfect. Like, I laugh and I get the feels every single time. And And I think that's partly the gift of John Candy because he's not just the bad guy, right? He's like... I mean, I, I hate to say this because I, I also love it, but, like, he gets a lot more depth than your, like... Oh, why am I blanking now? Chris from Saturday Night Live, who died later and was also... Right? Oh, um, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Beverly Hills, Chris Farley. Chris Farley. Like, people didn't let him have depth right. most of the time. But John Candy could, could do it. He could have, like... He could be a great salesman, yeah. annoying, a devoted husband, and a really good friend, and not just be the fat guy. Yeah. And uh, he, I mean, I think a case could be said that some real John Candy tended to bleed into a lot of his works. I mean, we're going to talk about Uncle Buck soon, and like, <laughs> there's, yeah, he's a flawed character, but we see past the flaws, and we tell fundamentally this guy has a good heart and he just wants to put a smile on people's faces and he's got his flaws but like he's on side he's one of the boys and John Candy just had that so effortlessly like I don't know if there was ever a movie where he played the surprise villain but I don't know if I would buy it like if in the third act John Candy whipped out a gun and started killing folk it would just be like what? Um, is there anything else you want to say about planes, trains, and automobiles? No, just, just that I know that like, from a really objective standpoint, it is the best thing that John Hughes ever did. Right. I do. Yeah. Well, I don't want my list from you. I want your list from you. So I, I will allow it. But yeah, it like 
so it's not my number one, but I know that it it, it belongs in number one. Well, we'll get to that conversation. Where do you live? The city. You have a house? Apartment. Owner rent? Rent. What do you do for a living? Lots of things. Where's your office? I don't have one. How come? I don't need one. Where's your wife? Don't have one. How come? It's a long story. Do you have kids? No, I don't. How come? It's an even longer story. Are you my dad's brother? I'm your dad's brother, all right. Buck Russell had always been the black sheep of the family. I'm stunned that I'm related to you. Until one night. Buck, we have a problem with the kids. We're stuck for somebody to watch them. Oh, please, not that. Can I trust him? My brother, for God's sake. I won't let him get into that Satan stuff or any of the new chicks. I'll leave that for me. Wow. <laughs> I'm kidding, huh? Now, he's making them breakfast. Cigar? No, thanks. Making them lunch. And making them crazy. What did you do? I do remember seeing Uncle Buck in the theater. I don't think I saw Ferris Bueller in the theater, at least not during its original run. I think I might have seen it at Place Riel when they did a like a an encore presentation or whatever a retro presentation of it but um yeah i think that this planes trains and automobiles and uncle buck were the first two john hughes movies that i saw on the big screen and that i had a really good time with something that i like to do when i'm preparing for an episode and i'm looking for talking points to bring up of a of a good thing is i'll, I'll look up the old siskel and ebert review on youtube and see what they had to say and they did not like Uncle Buck. And I sat here watching them talk shit about this movie. And I was amazed. I was like, what movie did you guys watch? Like, apparently, there there is a whole bunch of alternate editions of John Hughes movies. Sometimes he, he will do a different cut for the television release. And uh, his original cut, apparently, of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was almost three hours long. He cut half of the movie to get down to the movie we watched and um, i would i would watch a three-hour version of that movie by the way i totally would I want to watch a three-hour version of that movie but i think this is the movie uncle buck where we start seeing the bridge he's he's gone away from the teenage comedy he got into the adult comedy and now he's sort of merging the adult with the cute kid thing now this is obviously going to crystallize most financially successfully with the home alone series which he only wrote the first two and then just collected checks for the rest <laughs> or he might have wrote the third i could be wrong about that anyway um <laughs> this is where he discovered macaulay calkin because he plays one of the cute precocious kids who when their grandfather has a heart attack and their parents have to go and deal with this family emergency, they are put in the immediate care of the black sheep of the family, Uncle Buck. And I think that Siskel and Ebert took such an issue with how evil the teenage girl was to Uncle Buck and to how evil the mother was to Uncle Buck that they say that that kind of took the lightness and the fun out of the movie. I was like, I think that actually added the needed conflict in the movie. I mean, we all love Uncle Buck making giant pancakes and chasing the kids around the house or trying to talk the little girl out of, you know, I'm not sleeping with you. <laughs> and like all of this, like adorable business, which by itself would have made a totally fine, watchable, but maybe forgettable movie. 
It's this edge. It's how hated he is by the family. How much fear that she has that he's in charge of her kids while she's dealing with her own personal tragedy. And the, I think, very authentic level of evil that that teenage girl is capable of when she feels threatened by her Uncle Buck. She tears his life apart. And, like, you, you, you get involved in it emotionally. You get mad at her choices. But it makes the win when Uncle Buck wins her over and she changes to protect him. It, it makes that turnover such much, so much more rewarding. So that then it becomes a little bit more than a, you know, goofy, screwball, kiddie comedy. There is actually something that happened here. Uncle Buck is not necessarily redeemed, but he's accepted. And uh, he's redeemed in his own eyes because I don't think he believed himself to be capable of being a father until this happened to him. And he found out there is actually something that he's good at. So, not to the same level of planes, trains, and automobiles, but I found the balance of the feels and the comedy was on point here. And uh, it's one of the last truly great five-star John Candy movies. So, uh, I'm always going to treasure it for that. <clears throat> and yes, he punches a clown in the face. And yes, there's a lot of fun little zingy lines. So, <laughs> um, so I am trying to remember what order I the last three in because I kind of watched them together and I think it was Uncle Buck then Planes Trains then Curly Sue because I had taken a break I'd watched 16 Candles a couple weeks later I watched Uncle Buck and I'm watching it and I'm like am I missing something? Does he hate women? Because the women in this movie like that school principal with the huge <laughs> on her face is evil and a half um, is there a female no it's a male teacher who's evil um, well I don't then, think Laurie Metcalf is evil she's a little horny and strange but uh, very weird yeah and Uncle and Buck's girlfriend it has a bit of a Wilma Flintstone vibe where we like we know that she's right but yeah. we still want her to keep to him like yeah. you know what I mean and so I and then I and then I watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and I was like, no, because like Edie McClurg gets the win, and his wife is perfectly nice, and you know, it's just in this movie. So I'm not at all agreeing with Sybil and Ebert, and I, I try to not agree with Ebert just generally in life, but um, but there is some really sort of one-dimensionalness until the very end. And then everybody kind of gets redeemed in the end, right? But it's like, they get redeemed through Uncle Buck. Um, and, I, and, like, and, and I have to say, like, I kind of like that. I'm okay with it because it's not a pattern. It's not something he does throughout his It's just this one real bitchy mom and this one really damaged teenager. Well, and they obviously both have a chip on their shoulder, and it came from somewhere, right? Like, uh, and I, I found familiarity. I could relate more with the teenage girl than I could with her mom, as far as her like folding Uncle Buck out of the wedding photos and stuff like that. Like that's taking real time to spite him in a personal way. But uh, I could recognize a teenage girl who feels wronged and having their power taken from them, playing absolutely dirty. 
to win. And like I have witnessed and seen like uh, like maybe it's heavy handed in the script or maybe it's not, but it's recognizable. No, it's it, I don't think it's heavy handed. I think she's like I think she's pretty spot on and just like so where you like went into the whole endings for planes, trains and automobiles like Neil going back to having no home. I went into this whole deep dive on like what's up with these families that span like a generation of kids like there's a huge gaps in ages of the kids in 16 candles and huge gaps in the ages of the kids in uncle buck that's true but like this girl was probably born to a 20 year old mother like that's kind of where we're living in the film right and and then they don't have any more kids until like 10 years later so I don't know. That's kind of where I went was this idea that maybe, like, maybe her mom was not quite ready to be a mom yet. Right. And that's where everything... And, and then they moved. And uh, and that's kind of where, where all the comes from for me. But they made up backstory. Yeah. No, they did move, and, like, she has no control over her life. And in a weird way, she sees this heart attack. She's going to be in charge. Uncle Buck is Uncle Buck, but she's going to be in charge. And that is taken from her. And it, like, what did he say to her? If you if you ditch me today, I will drive you to school in my bathrobe tomorrow and walk you to your first class. Like, <laughs> like that's what Buck is, a, is like a parenting genius. That's right. And, uh, and, but also like just for the legitimacy of the teenage girls, is a real weird age, right? Yeah. Like her parents are treating her like a child. She wants to be treated like an adult. Can drive a car, or and she's about to be a car. You know, it's it's a, sixteen is a really loaded age. There's so much you can do, so much you can't do in it. But I think that's why sixteen girls are weird. <laughs> <laughs> Not- well, and I think what really gets her about Uncle Buck is what really gets most people about when they're uh, uh, on the wrong side of an argument is that he's right 99% of the time and that drives her fucking crazy. He's absolutely right about Bug. He's absolutely right about the choices she's making and like to have that thrown in her face like that from the last person she wants to hear it like no, she's going to kick hard. She's going to not want to resist it. But I like that this is counterbalanced because are the are the other two twins? I believe. No, the, um, I was wondering that too. And then it's established because it's the girl's birth, not the boy. Oh, okay. Um, they have party, right? That's right. Uh, anyway, the kids love Buck and they love Buck pretty much right away. <laughs> They're like 1000% on board and the dog loves Buck right away. It's really he... The big obstacle is this teenage girl, but she is a fucking handful. <laughs> well, but we still get the, like, the sort of same, like, Ocious Macaulay culture more of an it home alone interview at the beginning. He's right? suspicious, like, but he's also kind of into this. This is unusual. There's a new set of rules. There's a new regime in the house. Yeah. Um, about Bug, the boyfriend... Um, see, that's where I feel like John Hughes, Hughes sort of redeems himself for Jake Ryan is he's like, oh, I'm going to just decide that, like, guys who treat women like objects are just jerks. Yeah. We're going to just, like, have at it with this guy. And 
felony are there things that are worse than a felony <laughs> kidnap and kidnap. assault i think that would be substantially easy to prosecute for those things <laughs> but do we care no do we regret this no like hit those golf balls at that douchebag's head like it <laughs> and it's ridiculous and it does like it's so un maybe it's not as unrealistic in the 80s as it is now but like you know it's a bit of a flight of fancy but it's a marvelous marvelous moment and well and at at the risk of airing another unpopular opinion i think there's an ugly truth to the fact that guys like bug do have their appeal and because (laughs) she said no that night didn't mean he had another girl in the bed with him an hour later they're like lined up to be abused by this transparently terrible guy like there's there is a truth to this it is and so yeah seeing him dug out of the trunk of the car and having golf balls fired at him is incredibly dramatically satisfying how this plays out in the days ahead well we don't know the story I tell myself is that Bug was so terrified by that experience that he just kept his fucking mouth shut. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's the story I go with, too. And, uh, like, oh, what was I going to say? I had a thought and then it left my brain. Oh, just that, like, I, I feel like I could go through a high school yearbook and point out the bugs. Right. <laughs> Not naming any names, but, like, we knew them. Yep. They were the, and they did get girls. And if that one didn't play out, there'll be another one, if not later tonight, tomorrow. Like, Absolutely. And while, while the Michael C. Halls of the world remain lonely and pathetic, this fucking <laughs> piece of shit has women lining up to be abused by him. It's, it's tragic, but I mean, it's acknowledged here. Not in a, It's obviously a much gentler context that we have here that we're presenting it now, but... Yeah, Bug is terrible, and, and we are happy to see him lose. Yeah. Um, oh, I just had a, a, a question for you, sort of, on the teenage group, like the, the sort of clique culture that Bug and girl whose name is escaping me are in. Because I was looking it up, and I'm like, what are they? Like, they're not gods. They're not like like I would call them drama people, but there's got they've got trench coats, they've got these weird little almost cowboy hats, but they're flat. And I think they listen to the cure. I'm not sure, but I'm like, did he did he like make his own grouping here? Like was Maybe. That his fashion choices. Well, movies of that time had to make it up. Like Heather's sort of came up with their own lexicon and their own vibe because late eighties, early nineties, until like grunge gave everybody something to latch onto, they didn't really have an identity, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it was strange. <clears throat> well, I, I think there were the Blaines. Like I think those guys like going back to Pretty and Pink. Yeah, those guys existed. Yeah. I'm not sure that the uh, his buddy, the main character in the movie, really existed. Right. There were definitely Jake Ryan's, but yeah, this this particular group of weirdos, I feel like I might have wanted to be in their crowd. <laughs> well, I mean, I, uh, there every school has a drama department. I usually probably find I would get sucked into that vortex, but. Um, no, <laughs> like I say, I think that era era of time is just weird. It's sort of like the culture lost its identity for a while, <laughs> like right across the board. 
I wanted to talk about um, the specific redemption arc of Buck, who's sort of like a layabout guy. He has that monologue to himself where everyone says, you got it figured out, Buck. You don't have anything tying you down. You just do whatever you want. And the older he gets, the fewer people pay him this compliment anymore. And the real crux of the movie is he has a sure thing bet that if he can get placed, it will keep him comfortable for a couple of years. He can just sort of live off the couch and coast and continue the life that he wants to live. But he can't live with the fact that he would take the kids to the race or to the bedding cages or whatever. It was the, it was the step too far. The teenage girl was missing and there was she wasn't going to babysit for the kids. So he was put in this awful position. And I was just wondering, it's a question, I still love the movie. Do you think that was dramatically enough? Would it have been that terrible for Buck to take the kids to the place, place the bet, and drive them home? <laughs> I think Buck had a whole bunch of like little things working for his redemption, right? Yeah. Like he just if knew he it was wrong. Really a bad guy, he would be messing around with Lori Metcalf when she's throwing himself, and he's he's so gentlemanly towards her, even though everything points to him not being a gentleman. Yes. He. He's not stringing along the other girl, I forget her name, the woman, like, he is, but he also really loves her, Yeah. you know? Like, it's not like he's just wanting to be cooked for. He he has, like, he's invested in this relationship, and by the time the track comes around, he's so invested in taking care of these kids, right? He loses the argument, he's sharing a bed with them, they're all piling on top of them, all fall out, like... He's so invested in them, and he's so invested in the welfare of this girl that he, like, you know, maybe would have been the bug in the situation when he was a kid, right? That I think, like, I don't think it's just the kids. I think it's everything. I think everything kind of hinges on that moment, but it's all about the fact that, like, as you said, John Candy has a good heart. His characters have a good heart. And, and he, he had to do something right. for their good. It wasn't a thing for him right now, right? Yeah. And I think the movie established that he was doing lots of stuff just for them. The birthday party. Even when he punches out the clown, he does that because the clown is drunk and should not be at a kid's birthday party. Great scene, yeah. by the way. <laughs> it is. And he, like, he came from the same place as this boring brother of his that makes lots of money and lives in the Chicago suburbs in this ridiculously big house you know like he's not broken he's just made some bad choices and now he sees that he has an opportunity to make some good ones and I don't know I, I think, like, I think that there subtlety there could have been an inclination I'm glad that there wasn't to go a little bit darker like Maybe there was a reason that he was the black sheep of the family that was more than he was a layabout. I don't know, maybe he did some jail time or maybe he got drunk and did something very inappropriate at the wedding. Like, I felt like there could have been another skeleton in the closet other than, you know, he dabbled in gambling, <laughs> you know? Well, it's possible, but I also, like, I maintain, and I think I mentioned this last time, John Hughes has a bit of a chip on the shoulder about rich people. Right. And part of the character of the mom and Uncle Buck is that she's a snob. Yeah. And I think that he really felt strongly that this kind of person existed who was just going to look down on people for what they have or don't have. And I think he was pretty committed to that. 
Yeah. Um, to that divide between like rich snobs and not all of his not his rich people are snobs, but when he does draw them, he draws them hard. Yeah. So I don't know that Uncle Buck had to have anything that dark to be folded out of the pictures. I think she's just kind of a bitch. Yeah, and to be fair, we meet her and like she's just moved and she's not getting along with her daughter and her father has a heart attack and 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 we're seeing her at the withered end of things so we're probably not getting her at her best and and buck still understands that she has a heart and that she needs to have this moment with her daughter at the end (laughs) and it's kind of like the father-daughter moment in 16 candles we have the mother-daughter moment where you know they all realize that nobody's that bad and they love each other and it's all thanks to buck and it's cute. Fun fact, I believe it's Amy Madigan who's playing the actress uh, that's the girlfriend of Buck in this. That same year, she was in Field of Dreams, and the little girl from Uncle Buck was her daughter. <laughs> oh, I knew she was from Field of Dreams. I forgot that that little girl played. She gets knocked off of the stands and chokes on her hot dog or whatever in Field of Dreams, the little girl. Wow. Yeah. So they just they worked together on uh, in two movies in 1989, and they're both kind of memorable. So, fun fact, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> is there anything else you want to say about uh, Uncle Buck? No, just that I always think that it's Curly Sue in Uncle Buck. I always think it's that actress playing no. the kid, and it's this other girl who like didn't do a lot, I guess, beyond 1989, but still well cast. Uh, Curly Sue, do you remember a Kevin Klein movie called I Love You to Death? I do. She's one of his daughters in I Love You to Death. <laughs> See, and I know her best from Parenthood. There you go. The movie of Parenthood, not the series. Another great uh, Steve Martin role. Uh, but I think we've covered Uncle Buck. Or not! What possessed you to invite vagabonds into your home? Now, they're going from the poor house to the penthouse. This was the Ritz. From director John Hughes creator of Home Alone, comes James Belushi in Curly Soup. Hey! Ah! I scared the living hell out of Curly Soup. What is she, the lost stooge? A little con artist who finally gets what she deserves, a family. You're a man. She's a woman. Give us a kiss. Please, we're in public. May I? May you what? Kiss your cheek. In a pig's eye. James Belushi, Kelly Lynch, and Alison Porter. Curly Sue. I feel like an idiot. Big laughs come in small packages. So it's 1991, and this is the last feature film directed by John Hughes. He would write a lot of scripts, and he would write a lot of scripts under a pseudonym. Movies like Beethoven, and uh, he would contribute to Drillbit Taylor, I think. And uh, But he wouldn't use his name for a lot of his last actual script contributions. There is a Jennifer Lopez rom-com where she's a maid, and... Made in Manhattan. Made in Manhattan is another one, yeah. Uh, it's got a ghost draft by, by John Hughes. But as far as his directorial works, this is it. Curly Sue. And 
I, I saw it when it came out, and I think I was accepting and forgiving of a lot of its flaws because I was a fan, and I kind of was much more into the product that I was being served at the age of 14 or 15 than I am now. Honestly, watching it now, a lot of it made my teeth hurt. Like, it is so saccharine and so on the nose and so built of these, like, montages um, in the way that Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was kind of careful and respectful and uh, delicate at how it handled the situation that John Candy's character was in. This movie completely is not convincing that this little girl has lived a rugged life of struggle on the streets with her adopted father, John Belushi. And say what you will about John Belushi, the guy isn't untalented. But by all accounts, he is a prick. And uh, he didn't get along with John Hughes, and that soured the whole experience for him. Um, the reason to watch the movie is the little girl, is Curly Sue. Apparently, she's grown up. She's a very, very good singer. I guess she does, like, reality shows where you singing competitions. The sort of thing that I wouldn't watch at gunpoint. But I'm glad that Curly Sue has landed on her feet. I did notice her in other movies, even as a child actress, and I did think that she was adorable and comfortable on camera, which is what you need. And, yeah, so a little orphan girl and this guy who was teaching her how to make a living as a con artist find the sweetest sucker bet in, in, in New York, in Kelly Lynch. Uh, she falls for their bit, head, hook, line, and sinker, and she really connects with the little girl, which makes her sort of charmed in a way by her adopted father and 10 minutes into the movie you know everything that's going to happen in the movie and you're not wrong but what's missing for me is the fullness of the world like we said the other little character beats yes it was nice seeing Steve Carell for the first time ever I think in a movie in Curly Sue but largely the supporting players disappear in the background for me and it's just sweet and sentimental and aw shucks and in 1991 I was willing to give it a pass but if I'm honest in 2022 it's rock bottom for John Hughes movies and I really wish that it wasn't his last film I would have liked him finishing on something stronger but it seemed after this you know doing a script for Richie Rich or another Home Alone sequel or Beethoven was enough for John Hughes between that and the death of John Candy, I think the really, truly great days of John Hughes ended here. Which is a sad thing to burden this movie, which, at the end of the day, is completely harmless. Like, there's, there's, there's nothing here worthy of hate. But considering the heights that he had achieved before Curly Sue, I would have rather he directed Dutch, and Dutch be his last movie, than Curly Sue. That's where I start. Where are you landing? So, I think I had just started discerning between what might be good and what might be bad around the age that Curly Soup was in the theater. <laughs> For me, the only John Hughes movie that I saw in the theater was Home Alone. I was skeptical, and then I laughed until I cried and right. almost fell out of my seat. Because, I'm sorry, but like we all recognize that sequence at the end is hilarious. And you just don't, like, it's hilarious. But Curly Sue came out, and 
one of my biggest problems with this movie is the weirdest little thing. I've been obsessed with curly hair my whole life because I had it as a little kid and I don't really have it now. And the fact that he cast this little girl who clearly does not have curly hair (laughs) and either put her in a wig or have them do up her hair every day in this, what I have found since the day I first laid eyes on this character on like commercials is just the least convincing curly like naturally curly hair and then pins the whole like title of the movie and core of the character on this wild curly hair that is fake and that is why i have never wanted to see this movie (laughs) (laughs) it's so weird and random and um and then and yeah and i'm not a john belushi fan and I don't even think I realized at the time that this was John Hughes. Like, this was just when I was putting it together that all the movies of my childhood were made by the same guy, and his name was John Hughes, right? So I was around 14 when this movie came out. Um, and this was at a time where I still watched, like, um, Home Improvement. So, like, I didn't have great taste, but I knew that I was not interested in Curly Sue. So, like, it's very easy to watch. <laughs> it almost, even though it's a 90s movie, it almost sort of symbolizes the 80s in this huge way of, like, we really liked crap in the 80s, right? Like, we really liked stupid, heartwarming crap. We really liked to believe that, like, everybody could just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make something of themselves. And that, like... If you liked uh, the girl enough, she would just have to like you back. Yes, exactly. And and it's funny how you, like, mentioned the her falling for the girl character, because they don't even put that, like, he didn't put much effort into her falling for the guy. It's like, they just end up together because, you know, she's clearly had taste in horrible men prior, <laughs> prior to this moment. And, uh, yeah, as you say, he produced this charming little person. And so that's what it is. And it's like, in the ways that all his other movies have these, like, very well-crafted casts where, like, no character is sort of, you know, a throwaway, this movie goes the opposite way, and it's just all hinging on the talent of this one little girl, and she is talented. Well, she does a great job. Again, I don't mean to be mean about it. (laughs) No! Because it worked for John Hughes in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Again, I couldn't really seriously believe this life of, of horror and struggle that they had. In the same way, I didn't believe Kelly Lynch. If she's this super sharp attorney, why is she dating the most horrible guy in New York? And if she is super intelligent, how does she not see through the con that she's being put through, right? <laughs> she, okay, so first of all, like... I don't think anyone should ever discount the ability of women to date terrible men or men to 
terrible women. People are attracted to terrible people all the time. I don't find that hard to believe. Right. And the other thing is, I don't think she totally does buy it. Like, he calls her a saint, and he go, but he doesn't just say you're a saint. Like, your mother and father, blah blah blah. <laughs> they know, and she's just like, uh huh, okay. And so I don't think she totally does buy it. I think she is just roped into this idea and. To play devil's advocate, too, Curly Sue calls John Belushi on it. She says, we got a meal out of her, but we could have got a, a hotel room and some bills if you would have kept on going, but she was too pretty, right? She So maybe that would help her believe. Yeah, if this was a con, then he would ask for a place to stay and maybe some more money, but he just took the meal, and that was that. But I also think that, like, and, and I'm really, like saying this was love for John um he doesn't like he didn't put a lot of effort into these characters and I think like we're supposed to believe well she's wasted her childbearing years on a career on a career path and she's like wasted her like marriageable moments on this like douchebag and she's like this is her answer. This is how she's going to get to have it all. Right? So, like, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's... So like Curly the, Sue and her adopted father don't have lives. They can just set up shop in hers. Exactly. <laughs> like, uh, it's kind of like a Cinderella story, except the other way. Right? If Cinderella was a con artist. <laughs> if Cinderella was a con artist and the wicked stepmother was actually like a lawyer with a heart of gold who didn't realize she wanted a family until <laughs> they showed up on her doorstep. It's just bad circumstance. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about when I say that it's just a little bit sickly sweet at times, though? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think, like, for me, the most enjoyable scene is the gambling with the maid and -hmm. it's ridiculous like it's just all ridiculous but I'm like okay there's a little bit of John Hughes like comedy is like people don't take their job seriously of course the maid's gonna stop and play cards with this girl (laughs) and I like that was the only part where I felt like the movie was working for me it was very brief well, and you were talking about, like, the little brother in Sixteen Candles with all these constant zingers being wise above his years. Curly Sue is that when needed. But then yes. she can immediately devolve into the, you know, adorable little kid licking all the sauce off of her fingers or, or, or whatever, right? So yeah. she's just whatever is required uh, of the, the, the script at any given moment. And it just, I don't know, she was adorable, but maybe not real to me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, it's a pretty, it, it's just pretty out there, and I don't know, for, for, did John Candy die before this movie was made? No, he died, I think, shortly after it. I, I don't want to blame Curly Sue for that, though. <laughs> no, I was going to say, like, if this was the aftermath of John Hughes mourning John Candy, I could see it, but, like, somehow... I kind of just feel like he lost it. 
Yeah. Like, I think he just, like, he had a thing, and he did it well, and he did it with some range, because he did create some very different stories, even if they all have some things in common. And then he lost it. And maybe he didn't care anymore. I don't... I don't see the point of this movie for him. I see the point of the other movies from his, you know, from where I imagine his authorial intent is. But I don't see it here. I don't get the point of the movie. Well, and that's fair. Like, you started by saying it's very watchable. And that is true. But if when I walk away from the movie, like... I'm neither reminiscing over the highlight reel of the comedy, nor the emotional core of the movie. It's, it's just completely slipped through my fingers. Like, whereas I can watch even Uncle Buck again and again and still get a lot out of it and still enjoy it. There's just nothing to bring me back to Curly Sue. And that sucks for me to say. Like, again, the, that Dutch screenplay that came out right around the same time, like, he could have written that in a weekend, in his sleep. But that still feels more John Hughes than Curly Sue. And maybe that was the impetus. Maybe he thought this was more ambitious and more out of his comfort zone than he was used to. But because I'm never grounded in the reality where I believe that Jim Belushi or Curly Sue ever really suffered a day in their lives, nor will they, it kind of takes away from the rags-to-riches story that's going on here. And as much as he is a culture critic about uh, rich, snobby people, he himself was a rich, snobby person from Chicago. There's a devastating documentary, I believe, called Don't You Forget About Me, about a bunch of John Hughes fans wanting to send him a care... Isn't it, hmm? isn't it called Finding John Hughes? Is it? I, oh, maybe that... I'll, I'll, I will correct that in the edit if it's wrong, but they send him a package to get it to reach out to him and it gets sent back to them unopened. He didn't receive fan mail. He didn't tend to, to, to do interviews. There was a lot of talk about him being quite into cocaine later on into his career. <clears throat> and he became increasingly antisocial, especially after the death of his friend John Candy. <clears throat> so I really do think that after Curly Sue, and it was only a so-so thing at the box office, they were expecting it to be huge. It wasn't huge. It wasn't a bomb, but... I think that, yeah, he passed off his other scripts uh, to other directors and they were doing better than the ones he was directing himself all of a sudden. And he had more money than he needed. And if he wasn't passionate about the work anymore, I guess, you know, why not do some script doctoring for Hollywood for easy money and spend the rest of your life high on a beach? I mean, I guess he'd earned it. But as a fan, I would have loved it if, you know, we had another decade of great John Hughes movies and Curly Sue was just that little aberration, you know. He tried something with that cute red-headed girl and it had its moments, but meh. But considering all that we've had to say, even about the weaker lengths and the like, I would say for all of its, you know, ups and downs, Sixteen Candles is a pretty flawed movie. But there's just so much more to say about Sixteen Candles than there is about Curly Sue. So I would rather watch and discuss that. Well, I think that's probably a lot to do with the chip on his shoulder. I mean, he uh, probably wouldn't have had his career if his brother, you know, had lived. 
<laughs> and that's going to be a weird thing to have to live with. But still, don't be a dick to people. Apparently, he's got a rich history of being a dick to people, too. I think they both did. So, maybe yeah. that's why they didn't get along. Two assholes met, and it didn't work. Oh, no, I mean John Belushi. I think the Belushi oh. brothers were both ass- assholes. Oh, yeah. I guarantee it. <laughs> I guarantee it. Just because you're talented doesn't, you know, mean you're not an asshole. <laughs> Everybody yeah. was trying to be the next Chevy Chase in the 80s for some reason. <laughs> anyway, um... I say this as a huge fan of John Hughes, but Curly Sue is skippable. Agreed. Agreed. Shoshana, thank you so much for doing my John Hughes episode. This was a really long time coming, but I think worth it. Please, what was your least favorite of these six John Hughes movies and why? Well, I think I think it's going to be pretty obvious that Curly Sue was my favorite. And I think it's because it doesn't have the stuff that other John Hughes movies have. It doesn't have a terrific cast. It doesn't have, you know, heart and edge and lots of different kinds of feelings and um and it's just very not memorable nope not at all um so this is gonna you know maybe be a little surprising given my the history i told you i have with this movie but my number five is 16 candles and um i i love it in a nostalgic kind of way very flawed movie and it's got some very very um strong competition that's true so number four one it's really hard for me to parse these out so this is all really tied up in like nostalgia and the boys i had crushes on from the john hughes movies so again i know this is not in keeping with what you would go with and I know this is like technically the best of the movies but for me number four is planes trains and automobiles and it really has a lot to do with um there not being a guy that I thought was cute in my childhood (laughs) (laughs) Steve Martin and Kevin Bacon Uncle Buck because 
I was younger when I saw that. I don't think I related to the teenage girl, but I related to this idea of like the amazing uncle. And I did see my own uncle. And in Uncle Buck, I just wanted, and I have great uncles, wonderful uncles. But I also wanted to add Uncle Buck to my collection of uncles, right? Like those pancakes, <laughs> the t- talking with the, with, with the girl, the ridiculous car, and the like unapologetic this is me of Buck is yeah. just, you know, it's wonderful. And so I think you know what the last two are because I've already said my number one. So number two is The Breakfast Club and it does have a lot to do with uh, John Bender. Judd Nelson was a dreamboat. He was. He and, and he did not stay a dreamboat. But it's not just, like, I love that character. I love the character of John Bender. Um, kind of like all the characters uh, you know we all wanted to be clear but we're really Ali Sheedy and and there's just so many like moments and yeah I just I can't watch that and not be in love with it and my number one is Ferris Bueller's Day Off because I mean I think it still works on an adult level I want to do the same thing I want to be a kid I want to go out and have fun his line has never stopped being true. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you might miss it. So, well, it, obviously, with the death of John Hughes, there's you know no point in it at all. But the only John Hughes movie that I could see actually doing a decent late stage sequel would be Ferris Bueller's Day Off. If if somehow Ferris and Cameron had stayed friends and they were like cutting their mid 40s or late 50s right on that midlife crisis and they decided they needed to take a, another day off to relive their uh, lost youth maybe maybe john hughes could have made that work but without john hughes in the soup there's just no fucking way leave it alone leave it alone leave it alone i respect your list yeah it stings for me that planes trains made it that low but on some level i do understand it i am not rating this on how much i like the boys in these movies i went at it from a slightly different angle but we're going to start off in a place of agreement curly sue comfortably the bottom of the list i think that the, the the most resounding reason is that it's there's nothing that memorable about it like i said if i was to recount the highlight reel to you I don't know what that would be. So, I mean, I will back you up in your opening salvo that it is watchable, but that's that's about as far as I will go. And I will agree with you that in fifth place goes 16 Candles. I have a lot of affection for it, and I do think that it gets picked on justifiably for some of the uncomfortable racist elements in there and uh, just the adult content not being treated in a serious way gets a little date rapey as you pointed out but i think it still secures its sort of place in the hughes verse now is my most controversial position in fourth place this is the one that's going to hurt your feelings i think the one of these movies that have aged the worst because i kind of went in knowing that 16 candles had problems is the breakfast club John Bender fully sexually assaults Claire in that movie. He jams his head in between her legs. I don't know how, like, I blocked out that scene so much, but watching it again now with my kids, I was like, holy shit, is that ever not cool? 
and I'm not going to hang the whole movie on that basis, but uh, there was a few things like that throughout the movie that really hurt its legacy somewhat. But I love how seriously it's taking the kids. I think the performances are uniformly good, even from Emilio Estevez, who I do <laughs> have problems with. Um, but I would have thought originally it would have been like number one or two, and it's fallen all the way to four. Uh, in a stunning upset because Uncle Buck made it into third place. But I don't have a lot of negative things to say about Uncle Buck is the thing. Like, they could have made him a little bit of a harsher, darker character so we understood why where the hate was coming from, but that's not a real serious stick to hit the movie with, I don't think. I think it achieves all of its goals. I think it's funny when it wants to be funny. Love the scene where he tells the uh, principal to go downtown and have a, a rat not that thing off of her face <laughs> when he's first really embarrassed because he calls himself uh, the wart I'm uh, I, I'm what's her name's wart I'm not her wart I'm her uncle I'm sorry <laughs> and he's originally really really like embarrassed about it but once he realizes that this woman is awful he's like I don't know that and my just unending love and and missing of John Candy Uncle Buck surprisingly punched its way to third place. In second place, well, of course, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Warts and all, that is an effortlessly charming movie. It's incredibly quotable. It is really, really, you know, fun and warm. And yeah, Ferris might be a closet sociopath, but he's, he's my kind of closet sociopath, you know? Um... Like it or not, like Matthew Broderick was forever identified with that role for the rest of his life, and there's worse things to be identified with for the rest of your lives. But as I said, the one of these movies that actually hit me right in the feels and continues to hit me right in the feels every time I watch it, and I try to do it usually once a year or so, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, I think, surprises me by becoming John Hughes like unquestioned bona fide classic I think Ferris is there too and Home Alone which he wrote is a classic whether people want it to be or not but um, I think between Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Planes, Trains and Automobiles you will understand the John Hughes thing and if you want to dig deeper there's some great things to explore in his other screenplays and in his other movies but for me it just never got better than Planes, Trains and Automobiles so I completely like I completely agree with the idea that those two movies sort of make up the core of what John Hughes is. And uh, and I'm also totally with you. I never blocked out the, the assault scene. Like, I always remembered it. It's, I don't think I recognized it as problematic when I was younger because it was, well, it was like part of our culture growing up. And I see it as problematic now, but... Um, I think that movie is one of those movies that makes you nostalgic even the first time you watch it if you're a person from the 80s like yeah. the, like and so for me the nostalgia factor is a really big part of it but I do recognize that like in a totally objective if I were being like paid for my opinion as a film critic yes planes trains and automobiles is the best movie like absolutely but yeah but it's not my number one. No. no. And uh, uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to rank them. 
Yeah. Well, I that's my fault. I put you in this position, and that's your list. I have no problem with your list. I don't think we're gonna fight over it. <laughs> but uh, I do. I'm I'm so appreciate you doing this. It's great to to talk to you and to catch up. And again, I don't know who else would have been a better choice for this episode. So, big love, show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. Oh, right in the fields. So much for listening to this episode of Rank and Review. I would like to apologize. There was a little bit of distortion, I guess, in that Uncle Buck review, but I think it was listenable. And uh, Show and I kept on saying John and Jim Belushi backwards. We said John when we meant Jim and Jim when we meant John. But again, I think most people listening to the review of Curly Sue will know what we meant when we meant it. And I might have referred to planes, trains, and automobiles as trains, planes, and automobiles, and uh, my god, I'm just so incredibly, incredibly full of regret in my dyslexic heart about that. Um, (laughs) If I was perfect, I would be boring. Big love and big thanks to Shoshana Green for talking these nostalgic John Hughes movies with me. And uh, if you have feedback to send, send it to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website's rankandreview.ca. Check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show hosted by Jason Dubray, a really good friend of mine, and he knows what he's talking about when he talks about movies. And the Terror Table Podcast, another local-to-me movie podcast that has their poop in a group. Rank and Review drops every other Wednesday. Big thanks, big love to you all from your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons.